0: as we discover the history, the music and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com Hello, 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 goodbye, goodbye, goodbye and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. Remember, this is widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host Sam Wiles. Thank you all for listening. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Hey everyone, it's going to be a very long-ass housekeeping segment today, so I'm going to try and keep this intro as brief as I can. Everyone, can you cast your minds back to the episode where we covered a toot and a snort in 74? If so, you will remember that I was not alone in that venture. Yes, of course, I was joined by the indomitable Anthony Rattuno from the Fantabulous Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast, a series that I have consumed now in its entirety. Really, if you haven't listened to Glass Onion, folks, go and check it out right now. But yeah, on that episode, it took me and Anthony, well, I should say me, well over an hour to get onto that subject. But it was one of my favourite episodes that I've ever done on this podcast. And so, of course, I was going to get Anthony back on the pod ASAP. This time, though, we decided to shake things up a little further. Again, you should remember that the Toot and a Snort in 74 episode was actually the very first swapcast that we did here on Paul or Nothing. A swapcast is where both podcasters, both hosts, put the audio on both of their streams, you know, double the exposure, which was a very lucrative deal on my part, if you ask me. That episode is still our fifth most downloaded one, if I'm not mistaken. And in the spirit of that, we've decided to take things one step further by recording two swap casts back-to-back. I'm sure, as you all know, both John Lennon and Paul McCartney eventually retreated to the realm of rock and roll covers albums, and so, with one of us being a McCartney podcast, the other being a John Lennon podcast, how could we not take advantage of that? The most fun element, though, is that we will be playing swapsies. Yes, I'll be hosting the John Lennon episode, a.k.a. on the 1975 album Rock and Roll, and Anthony will have the pleasure of hosting the McCartney episode about, you guessed it, Viziziar, the Russian album from 1988. As you can tell, this episode, even without this housekeeping segment, is already well over two hours long, so, you know, no prizes for guessing that I was the host of this episode, especially when you see the runtime of the Chobber conversation, but, yeah, you're all clever people. I'm sure you will all know how this works. This episode, as well as the Chobber episode, will appear both on this feed first and then later on the Glass Onion one. Though we will make every effort to make sure that all of this content is unique, you know, so you'll be forced, annoyingly, to listen to both my episode of Rock and Roll and Chobber and Anthony's episode of Rock and Roll and Chobber. It's nothing personal, folks. It's just business. But yeah, for now, you can sit back, relax, and imagine what it would be like if I hosted a John Lennon podcast. But before we can do any of that, it's time we moved on to the housekeeping. What have we got in terms of news this week? Well, firstly, rather excitingly, a trailer for the new music video for "Sliding" made its way onto YouTube. Of course with Covid Maka isn't doing traditional music videos anymore and so instead we're going to have some kind of badass extreme sports type video instead with snowboarding, skateboarding, skiing, all that jazz. You've probably noticed it's all a play on the pun of sliding so all of those sports will feature sliding in some way. Maybe we'll get some luge or curling involved, who knows. But yeah the footage we see really gets me quite excited, actually. Obviously, we were never going to get a video like Coming Up or Who Cares during COVID, and the video for Find My Way by one of the Coppolas was a great example of what we could do, but hey, let's just go outside and watch some badass extreme sports men and women do their thing. I think it matches the particularly awesome grandeur of the song quite well, and If anything, it really reminded me of the Blue Sway music video, like with the surfing and the underwater stuff that came out a few years ago. So keep your eyes out for that, folks. It should be out soon, and I'll be covering that video in my eventual McCartney 3 summary episode that is taking so long to write, because it's just never-ending with that album, isn't it? We've also had another Spotify McCartney EP released for Valentine's Day. This one's simply titled... Valentine, and features Really Love You, the 2004 Summer Remix from Twin Freaks, then Deep Deep Feeling, Getting Closer, Long Haired Lady, also the Twin Freaks version, Kiss of Venus, Silly Love Songs, Waterfalls, That Would Be Something, Deep Down, maybe I'm Amazed, another Twin Freaks selection, this is right up my alley, Every Night, We Got Married, When the Night... Looking at her and Maybe I'm Amazed. Yep, as you all know, folks, I am a big fan of all of this Spotify-exclusive McCartney stuff. You know, even if it is just rearranging the same old songs in a new order, it's new McCartney content. It keeps him in the spotlight. And hey, if there's anyone who's going to drop a needless Spotify Valentine's Day EP full of love songs, it's got to be Paul, hasn't it? Also on Paul's website... Paul does this little monthly question segment. I'm not sure if I've brought it up before. I might have done during the McCartney three for all. It's called You Gave Me the Answer. Clever enough title. But fuck me, was this month's selection the most bland, pointless, needless entry ever? You know, normally they ask him at least stuff about the music or something with a bit more substance to it. And, you know, this month it's just catching up with Paul as to what he's been watching on TV lately, which turns out to be Boardwalk Empire and comedians in cars getting coffee. Absolutely riveting stuff, right? And finally, I just wanted to point out something that's really been grinding my gears over the past few weeks. Basically, pop star Cliff Richard, yes, that one, one of the Beatles contemporaries that they eventually left in the dust of, Relative Obscurity, has released a new autobiography in the past few months, to the sound of what he probably assumed would have been thunderous applause, but no, and instead he has to plug this book in the only way he knows how, by riding on the coattails of the Beatles. Now, for any non-UK residents, Cliff Richard was part of the paedophilia scandal that crept over the UK a few years ago in the wake of Jimmy Savile's death, and Whilst Cliff Richard was exonerated and proven completely innocent in that fracas, it irreparably damaged his relationship with the BBC. He doesn't do interviews with them anymore. He never appears on there. So this means Cliff has to go to whoever else will take him. And, I mean, if we're talking about the lack of relevancy for Paul McCartney in 2021, you know, times that by 100 for Cliff... And he's had to find solace in one of the UK's newspapers, The Express. And The Express certainly caters to an older, more conservative, <clears throat> right-wing part of the UK's population. And seemingly, they are one of the last vestiges of people who give a flying fuck about Cliff Richard. As over the past few weeks, they've peddled so many clickbaity headlines to plug in. This shitty new book he's put out. Like they, like they mention this autobiography in every one of the articles at some point. We have headlines such as John Lennon's plea for Cliff Richard to delay song release to give Beatles a chance. This is an article where Cliff claims that Lennon begged him to the, to delay the release of one of his own singles so that they could release From Me to You. In which Cliff also points out that he advised them it should have been a single. There's Cliff Richard took swipe at arch-rivals Beatles for being a step behind the Bee Gees. A whole article which is basically just derived from one line in the book where Cliff says the Bee Gees were better than the Beatles. Then there's Cliff Richard Confession. Singer forced rivals the Beatles to emigrate over success. This is one where Cliff basically rewrites history and rather than acknowledging the fact that the Beatles went to the centre of rock and roll, i.e. Hamburg, because there was nothing left to do in Liverpool. And instead he implies that he chased them out of the country with his own popularity. There's Cliff Richard, furious rant over rivals the Beatles success exposed. Quote, it's ridiculous. This one is literally just him saying that he should have been more successful than the Beatles and how their appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show ruined his own chances in America. Finally, Cliff Richard clashes with Beatles' Paul McCartney for always recording at Abbey Road. Which is pretty self-explanatory. He's not having a go at them for uh, being fond of a particular studio. They are clogging up studio space that he could have used. But yeah, folks, if you need any more proof that Cliff Richard is desperate for a bit of publicity to shift the untold thousand unsold copies of his book look no further and the fact that he and this newspaper keep referring to the Beatles as his rivals is so sneaky because what it's basically doing is it's implying that they are on the same you know level which they're just not they're not and it's a very sleazy way that people try and make similar things equate. You know how, like, with climate change deniers, they'll be like, well, there's a conversation going... No, no, there's no conversation. And there is no conversation as to whether Cliff Richard rivaled the Beatles. Like, okay, maybe in 61, 2 and 3, I'll give you that. But after that, it's just incomparable, the success of the Beatles, isn't it? Also, if you need any further proof that this newspaper is right-wing... Look no further than the image of a crusading medieval knight with the St George's Cross of England emblazoned on its shield. Like, you know, that's totally not a very nationalist, borderline, offensive image there, eh? Anyway, fuck Cliff, fuck the Express, let's move on. To get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmccarniepod at gmail.com as always, I love to read out your correspondence and I wanna hear your Paul McCartney stories, whether it's trivia, encounters with him, you've had live shows you've been to, have you ever met any of the ancillary characters in this story? Were you an Apple scruff, were you an MPL scruff? Whatever it is, I wanna hear it. Our first email today is from a first time correspondent named Lucas and he says, Firstly Sam, thanks for doing the podcast. It's gotten me through many days at work and helped me learn a lot of interesting things that I didn't know. Even thinking about becoming a patron. Think further about that, Lucas. Think long and hard, my friend. Anyway, back before I got into Paul, I had a CD of all the best that I would rent regularly from the library. One time when me and my mum went up to New York to see family, we spun that CD hundreds of times. This was the first chance I had to listen to songs like No More Lonely Nights, Say Say Say, and many more songs from Paul's Songbook. My favourite was Sea Moon. It's very interesting that Paul chose a relatively obscure B-side for that compilation. Anyway, all the best eventually led me to look into Paul's catalogue and, a few years later, find your podcast. I'm excited for more, especially the Off the Ground episode, a relatively underrated Paul album especially the bonus tracks all the best and i see what you did there lucas of course thank you for that email there lucas what a fantastic memory i am so jealous oh my god the idea that i would even put on one paul mccartney album once on in the car with my own mum is is but a fantasy for me so you know you are a lucky bugger there i must i must admit you know any musical memories you can have with parents are always treasured, you know. I can remember listening to Focus by Hocus Pocus with my dad whilst he got drunk at, like, 2am in the morning. Those memories will never leave you, even if mine is a little more salacious. Also, renting a CD from the library, Lucas, seems as old-fashioned as riding a penny-farthing bicycle. Like, that is, that is incomprehensible to a, a streaming downloader such as myself. Anyway, I personally cannot wait to cover Off the Ground, or All the Best, really. They both look like they're going to be fun episodes, and I must conclude by saying one should never underestimate Paul's hidden love for Seamoon. He seemingly plays it at every opportunity, and it even comes up in a future episode that I've already recorded, where me and John Heaton cover the James Paul McCartney TV special, so stick around for more Seamoon content in the future. Our next email is from another first-timer, this time called Kevin, and he writes, As a 14-year podcaster myself, I produce two running podcasts. I know how much work can go into this stuff. You hide it well, but this podcast malarkey takes time and none of us actually make a penny from it. So thanks and good on you. It's certainly not some sort of game to see who is the greatest Paul McCartney fan, but I can tell you that I have a beautiful 11-year-old daughter named McCartney, and it makes for great conversations to those from a certain generation who, quote, get it. Now, this next part makes me think that Kevin might either be a little bit confused, or might have just done some automatic writing. He says, thanks again Paul. (laughs) I'm always called Paul, and keep it up can't wait for you to move on to the beatles as well kevin yeah kevin thank you so much for that email there the name's sam by the way just in case you didn't know uh, i myself i'm only nine years away from your mark the 14 year podcasting milestone i cannot wait till i'm in your shoes and emailing a young whippersnapper like me i mean not that i ever would i'm far too self-centered and arrogant for that but you know you, you get the idea And, folks, Kevin is wrong. Barely any podcasts make enough money to even keep the lights running. And the fact that I have a little Patreon family of my own, hopefully joined by Lucas soon, means that this podcast is an exception to that rule. So so for that, everyone, I can only try to express the thanks and appreciation that I feel for you for supporting this dinky little podcast. And Kevin will know... How deep that appreciation truly goes. Appreciate, appreciate, appreciate. Anyway, in conclusion, Kev, I don't think that there is anyone out there who can top naming their daughter McCartney in terms of Macca fandom. Though, that being said, folks, if you think that you are more than a fan of Kevin a.k.a. the man who named his daughter after McCartney, then please write into the show and state your claim. I would love to read it. Again, that's McCartneypod at gmail.com. Send us something in, folks. I'd love to read it out. For more day-to-day updates, please follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Check out the blog for all sorts of bonus Paul McCartney content, including our new article, which is a redux, a redo, a remake of one of our earlier articles, the uh, Top 11 Linda McCartney Moments. I've been, been working on that for quite a while now. I'm very proud of it. You can find it at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, either by topic in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. I'll see you there. And if you're enjoying the show, you want to help out right away in a form that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are using. If you're on Facebook, please give us a like. It always helps boost us in the algorithms. And hey, if you want to say something nice about the show in addition to that, well, that would be just grand, wouldn't it? Speaking of uh, (laughs) writing a little something extra... I thought I would needlessly pad out the runtime of this episode even further by indulging in a little bit more self-wankery, as once again, I've read some of the wonderful reviews for this podcast that you folks have been sending in. Now, I'm not going to read the five-star ones, folks, because I already read positive emails far too regularly here on the show, but I thought it would be fun to have a look at some of the more negative, poor or nothing reviews. Let's start with... Don't bother with this podcast. One star rating. Vulgar language. No reason for that. Sam Wiles is not informed about all of McCartney's work. However, he admits it. He actually has the nerve to ask you to give him a five star rating. Not just a review and a rating, but a five star rating. His thoughts go all over the place. He hardly finishes a complete thought. If you want a McCartney podcast, I suggest you try Two Legs, a Paul McCartney podcast with Tom Hunyadi and Andy Nichols. Well, firstly, uh, let me just respond to that by saying, fuck you, you asshole cunt. You know, if you can't handle swearing, I mean, pff, <laughs> I don't know how you've been dealing with the real world this year, frankly, because it's been a lot more offensive than coarse sailor language. Just a quick shout-out to the Untitled Beatles podcast as well. They've suffered from something similar. You know, the only fuck that some people want to hear, I guess, is the single one in big boys bickering. But it's my shtick, you know. It's how I make myself a bit different by being a bit crass, by being a bit vulgar, shall we say. not going to apologise for that one. Also, if you are going to review this show negatively, I do ask that you at least capitalise the start of your sentences and, you know double check your writing you know check your syntax because that was all over the place it was like a schizophrenic wrote that we move on to mixed bag three stars it's a little bit better first the good news Sam is enthusiastic diligent and thorough but he is best when he has a guest someone to interact with a partner to edit and rein him in would be valuable alone Sam goes off into streams of consciousness which are hard to follow he has a juvenile tendency to start a thought, indeed a sentence, without having worked out where he's going with it. So he resorts to over-exaggerate. I'm sure they meant to write over-exaggerating his point. This is true even with material he has clearly written out. Combined with a millennial social media quality which confuses snarky negativity with insight, it can be a tough listen for his intended, who'd likely admire and know more about McCartney than he does. Ooh, that's like a knife in my heart, that was. Yeah, I I agree with that to some degree. I prefer episodes where I have a guest, you know, it's, it's just more of a creative, fertile environment, someone to bounce off, though, once again, we come across the the matter of people just don't like it when you slag off Paul McCartney. Some of his stuff is shit, folks. Some of it is god-awful. Like, there are too many hagiographies out there that just wank Paul off and say everything he did was great, everything by the Beatles was great. None of the Ringo albums are total trash and, you know, should be removed from history or anything. Oh, folks, like, I'm trying to take this criticism to heart. I really am. But then the same should be said for Paul. He should be able to take some of my criticism. I mean, who am I? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fucking nobody. I'm just some podcaster. Paul's one of the richest, most powerful men in the world. I'm sure his ego can handle it if I slag off Krina Crawray or something. And once again... Please do not review the show saying people know more about Paul McCartney than me. When the fucking conceit of this show is that I do not know everything. I am not a completionist. I'm going through the discography chronologically. So, suck my dick if I don't know something about memory almost full. Finally, we have, sorry, didn't like it at all, two stars. I like the slightly amateurish feel of the podcast, but I just got the feeling that the podcast didn't really care about Paul's work at all. Uh, Using the same word twice in a sentence, uh, just a mass of mostly negative opinions. There is quite a lot of Paul's work I don't care for, but the guys I were listening to, assuming he was not one of the first episodes, just seem to not like most of Paul's work rather than like it, which is strange for a Paul McCartney podcast. Yeah, again... There we are, folks. If I don't rate everything four stars or higher, then I'm not a Paul McCartney fan. You know, it's not like I'm bringing a fresh take to this. I am not like all of you. I wasn't 33 years old when Give My Regards to Broad Street was in cinemas. I was born in 1992. I can only bring my own frame of reference to this, folks. Yeah, I I am getting a little bit worked up. but You know, this podcast means an awful lot to me. It probably means an awful lot to you. And... I know it's a little bit like Lennon, you know, if you don't like my art, then you don't understand art. But, my God, I refuse. I refuse to change anything about how negatively I review some of Paul McCartney's work on this podcast. Uh, If I didn't, I would just sound like all the other ones out there. (laughs) And that is something I cannot abide. Anyway, let's move on, because, you know... I feel like we're getting a little bit too negative here on the show and people can't handle the negativity. And finally, folks, if you want to join... (laughs) And finally, folks, if you want to support that utter madness financially, if you are okay with the fact that I asked for five-star reviews for a podcast that I've been doing for half a decade now for free in my own spare time, Um, please consider joining our Patreon family. Of course, I'm sure many of you know, you've heard me rant about it a million times. Patreon is a service by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself on a monthly basis. You just chuck a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month. It goes straight back into the show every time, including the hosting charges for putting this podcast online, as well as running the site Purchasing new content, purchasing, you know, films, books, research materials, all that shtick, that malarkey, sometimes even paying guests. And yeah, if you've been enjoying the show, if you've been enjoying the fact that there's never going to be any ads on it, then please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family, a family of people including Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anis OJP, Robert Carabelli, Tony Versaul, Warren Butson, and matt phillips thank you all to everyone who supports the show and thank you for listening to these insane ramblings of mine though by now you should be aware that all of the timestamps are in the, the descriptions for this episode so if you want to skip past all of the housekeeping stuff just scroll down a little bit in the description and you'll see where you and you can find out where you can jump to anyway folks now that all of that is over we're going to cut to the live feed where technically I'm going to be hosting an episode of Glass Onion on John Lennon where me and Anthony Rattuno discuss John Lennon's rock and roll. Take it away, me. Sweet little sixteen.
1: I've just got my guitar. Just when we get to Sweet Little 16, I'm just going to do a little comparison. <laughs>
0: Hello everyone, hello and welcome to another episode of Glass Onion and or Paul or Nothing, our second and or third swapcast, depending on which order you listen to. Where today we are going to be going through one of two back to basics rock and roll tribute albums put out by Lennon and McCartney in the years after the Beatles breakup. I am the host of Paul or Nothing, Sam Wiles, and of course I am joined once again by Anthony Rattuno, or I'm joining him, depending on your opinion, the host of Glass Onion on John Lennon. Anthony, I'm not going to say welcome to the show, because it could be your show that I'm talking on right now, so I'm just going to say hello there, pal. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, say hello there instead. Welcome to my house, and I welcome myself to your house.
0: A plague upon both our houses.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's good to be back, yes. It's been ages. When was the last time we did that other show?
0: First lockdown, I think, maybe.
1: Yeah, June, I think, something like that.
0: Yeah, I do remember... uh, There was a big gap between when I put it out and when uh, your one went out as well. And thankfully, oh, yes, it's it's, it's been one of my most lucrative episodes. You're only back here purely for like financial reasons, you know, Um, just using me, (laughs) everyone, you know. But I do have to thank you publicly before we continue, because around six months ago, after we did the last one. Uh, we agreed, along with our journalist buddy, Owen Ling, agreed to review the classic Barry Miles book many years from now as a kind of threesome, if you will. And in that time, I still haven't finished the book. So, I, you know, in less than, like, a week, you've prepped both a rock and roll and a, a chobber episode, and yet I can't read a book. So I am just going to say thank you for that. And, th- you know, hopefully this will be a decent enough second prize
1: for you. It's a long book, isn't it? But it's very readable.
0: Oh, I'm not going to lie. I am skipping whole sections where it's like, oh, here's just facts about swinging London in the 60s. Like, mm. no, get skipped straight. You know, the moment I see Rubber Soul, that's when I'll start reading it again. Okay. Sorry, sorry, Barry. <laughs>
1: I think a lot of it's backed up, though. Well, sure, we'll talk about this when we eventually do that, but I think a lot of the claims are quite well backed up. I must say that.
0: It's quite sensationalist, actually, even when it's quite downplayed. Mm. I do uh, see myself putting the book down and checking Wikipedia quite a lot to go, is, is that really real? And it always mm. is.
1: I'm rereading Goldman, actually. Just started rereading it because I'm going to be on a podcast in March talking about it. Yeah, very interesting.
0: <laughs> oh, that one.
1: Just on the subject of books, yeah, yeah.
0: Now, um, anything sensationalist yet or uh, is it all just the basic stuff so far? You give, you've, you've got to...
1: No, I mean, the fir- the first chapter's got some juicy stuff in it, but it's also a very good book. Like, it's it's much deeper than the other, the sort of polar opposite, the Ray Coleman one. I have to laugh because I'm always going on about Coleman or Goldman. My fans <laughs> have got it in the first five minutes in an episode that's got nothing to do with Coleman or Goldman.
0: Oh, no, I mean... Anyway,
1: that's all I've got to say. <laughs>
0: dude, the, the amount of times I've told the story about when I got dizzy seeing Paul McCartney at the, o- at the O2 has bored people to death to no end... I'll probably add it again at the end of this episode just to annoy them
1: yeah send me a recording of that story for, for <laughs> oh, a previous cool. episode
0: well i'll have to because there are no photos of that day unfortunately i got the bloke standing next to me to, to take a bunch of photos and then i never got uh, i never gave him my number so. oh. <laughs> anyway dude right. we're gonna start the day off with yeah boy john lennon's own rock and roll covers album the aptly titled rock and roll but before we get into things, let me ask you the broadest of today's questions. In general terms, are you a fan of covers? Do you ever find yourself listening to full cover albums?
1: Yes, well, I do uh, do an appearance on Under the Covers, someone I believe you've worked with
0: yes. since. yeah.
1: I do, yes. I mean, I've been a musician for 30 years. I've been a songwriter as well, but I had a long period of covers. And I actually quite admire artists who put covers into their sets. I just find it's kind of nice because among musicians, there's there's a sort of anti-covers thing, which I find a bit snobby at times perhaps. But uh, I think, you know, generally I'd say 90 something percent of guitarists will start learning covers, even if it's, you know, the first song I ever learned on the guitar was he's got the whole world in his hand. (laughs) It wasn't wasn't necessarily a cover of a pop song, but, uh, you know, you're going to, yeah, you're going to start like, you're going to start like playing other people's songs. So, uh, I think it's a sort of gateway drug, if you like to write, to writing your own songs. So, yes, I do like covers, yeah. I particularly like the ones where they're done completely differently. Whereas All along the Watchtower being the obvious example. Oh, oh hallelujah.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, mm. look, let's, let's just get this out, out of the way. Dolly mm. Parton's version of And I Will Always Love You trounces the Whitney Houston one every damn time. That's the, if, if I have to make one point today, it's going to be that one.
1: I don't think I've ever heard Dolly's one. You haven't heard
0: Dolly's version? I don't think so. Oh, my heart weeps. Folks, we're going to cut to that right now if you're listening to Paul or nothing.
1: I'm guessing it's not quite as grand as Whitney's one. So at least Whitney added something. I think when covers, I think you've, well, you can do what you want, obviously, but uh, I would say you should, when you cover a song, try and add something different.
0: So you you prefer uh, a reinvention than, say, an impression or an imitation?
1: Uh, It depends. I mean, some people can just get away with it. If you've got a voice like, um, I don't know, Johnny Cash or someone, although Johnny Cash's covers that he did later in his life, he did do them differently, but... You can get away with it if you've just got a very, very distinctive voice. You don't have to, but I think it's nice to reinterpret them. I don't think it's sort of trouncing or trashing the original. I think it's more of a tribute, really.
0: Just going back to what you were saying about artists and bands having to learn covers, though, that pretty much Mm. sums up Lennon and the Quarrymen, doesn't it? Lennon was raised on learning Mm. everyone else's covers in an era where you might not even know what certain chords are. It's it's not like he, he could go on tab.com or you know chords.com <laughs> and just look up every single song by chuck berry he, he might have to get on a bus yeah. to learn a d minor or something
1: um, yeah well paul tells the story yeah, about the learning the b7 because if you yeah because like if you play um 12 bar blues for example is that i'm actually going to talk about that later when we get to one of the songs but yeah if you play the basically you've got like um a one four and five chords that, that goes together so any sort of rock and roller elvis presley chuck berry as long as you've got those three chords. And I think the B7 would be the third chord in in the key of E major. But, yeah, you're right, like, they started doing covers, but, of course, then Lennon and McCartney, when they met in 1957, they made the incredible discovery that they'd both been writing songs independently, which was quite rare in those days. So that must have been quite a moment. But
0: the era back then as well, covers were just much more prevalent and ubiquitous in society Mm. anyway, like... You'd have easy listening albums or just Mm. a a singer like Barbara Streisand who doesn't particularly have new songs written for her or Tom Jones. Let's just have a bunch of covers on this album. It's Tom Jones does all of these songs and they all went to number one. It's a very different world to now, though the 60s, early 70s climate, talking things like, you know, Maybe I'm Amazed, uh, Let It Be, Long and Winding Road, this era. It's all very McCartney heavy, as I would be. Bias to point out, mm. it is a shame that more classic Lennon covers don't exist. Really,
1: well, Lennon McCartney obviously changed the landscape. Not not only them, but they,
0: they among others themselves.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they made it, they made. Uh, well, they made everyone else work harder. You know, and do you know the story of why they started learning songs? One of Paul's stories. I do like this one. Go on. Um, he said that like when they were performing in Liverpool in sort of the late fifties, and you know there was this sort of. Sudden sprouting of, you know, 200, 300 bands in Liverpool playing skiffle and then transitioning to rock and roll. yeah Paul would say, like, the first band, the first band of the bill would, or say, let's say the Beatles are third on the bill for argument's sake. The first two bands between them had done the Beatles' whole set. Right. <laughs> you know, so what I say? Rock Island Line, Hound Dog, whatever they were doing. John, and he's so, done
0: Dizzy Miss Lizzie. What are we going to yeah. do? Yeah. The
1: two bands, the two bands before us had done our whole set. Yeah.
0: Who they would have thought decided. they would have played Blue Suede Shoes as well?
1: Oh. Yeah. And um, what you were saying earlier about everyone doing covers as well, often you'd have two quite major artists covering the same songs, same song in the charts at around the same time. So Little Richard and Elvis both did Rip It Up, which is a song we're going to talk about today, and it would be in the charts perhaps not exactly the same time, although that's possible, but certainly around the same time. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, just a totally different landscape in the 50s. But um...
0: Well, like, isn't isn't it a bit like cinema where it's like, you know, Back in the 30s, King Kong was number one for eight years because there Mm. might have been three other movies made in that decade and there were just less songs. There were just less songs back then. There were less artists. And now, when you've got Spotify and you've got access to millions of artists, you don't have to do Johnny Be Good to get in the charts, you know?
1: Yeah, there's, there's always a sweet spot with all these things. It's like technology, you know? It wasn't much fun when you didn't have washing machines, and and women would have to spend all day scrubbing clothes. But, but then uh, then you get you get past the sweet spot where the technology is great, and then it just goes on and on and on. So I think it's gone like that with songs. You know, not not that I've got anything against like being able to go on Spotify, but in a, in a funny way, like maybe it's my age, but like it was fun when you had to work a bit harder, you know, to find things.
0: It is interesting though that that the Beatles were there to herald the end of the rock and roll covers scene, it became mm. much more of a pop cover scene or like taking things from other genres and transposing them and reinventing them. Whereas, you know, up, up until, you know, 62, the way you legitimised yourself as a current rock pop act was mm. to play the last, you know, the last decade's hits. An actor would totally not establish themselves that way now. You know, if mm. Billy Eilish's first hit singer was Poker Face, she would not be where she is now at all.
1: I don't know who Billie Eilish is. You're a bad (laughs) guy. I have heard the name. (laughs) But uh, it's interesting with these 50s, because basically what we're talking about, really, these songs are all more or less, I think, late 50s, early 60s. It it always comes back because it's quality stuff, you know. So around the time of the rock and roll, you had American Graffiti. And then a few years after this, you had uh, Greece. You know, I guess the stage Mm. musical of Greece must have been around the same time as this album. So I think the quality stuff comes back. You know?
0: Yeah, well, it's the 25, 30 year pop culture cycle, isn't it? You know? Mm. So if Lennon's doing this in seventy four, seventy five, he's doing the last twenty five years. So yeah. if, you know, a current band will say, you know, to do it today, it would probably be covering Britpop and that kind of thing. Well it's funny, yeah, because the seventies was a kind of a
1: fifties revival and then the nineties, which was my first sort of decade of being a proper music fan really, was Kind of the '60s, a bit of a '60s, and then I don't know. Uh, but then we're running out of decades. So then eventually someone's gonna. Then we're gonna have start having a repeat of the '90s, and they say it's gonna go round and round and yeah. run out decades to parody your. Or, or shock horror, <laughs>
0: we, we might invent some new fucking culture, and then yeah. and then you know we might actually be able to have some counterculture again.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need a counter to
0: something, don't you? Oh no, oh no. <laughs> like when you get a nice um, politician coming into power. That's the worst thing for art and comedy. It's like, ah, oh, you know, so, like, society's going to improve, but the punk rock scene's going to suffer.
1: Yeah, well, there's a famous... Uh, oh, you're a cinephile, aren't you? Have you seen The Third Man?
0: Have I seen The Third yeah, Man? No, yeah, I
1: don't know. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'll take it you have. So Orson Welles' famous see, speech about, you know, what was it, Italy had 200 years of bloodshed, but they create, but they produced Leonardo, Di, Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio, I'm tired, I'm tired. <laughs> Leonardo yeah. da Vinci, and Michelangelo. Switzerland had uh, hundreds of years of brotherly love, and they produced the cuckoo clock. So, yeah, Orson's with you.
0: Yeah, but I wouldn't trust anything Harry Lyme said, you know. Yeah, but Orson Welles wrote the speech, and I trust Orson a bit. I wouldn't. He was a fantastic trickster and uh, exposer of magicians. Uh. Yeah, have you seen F for Fake? I bet you have. Um, has that got James Randi in it? No,
1: it's like a sort of semi-documentary that Orson Welles made in the 70s. Oh, You'll love it. really?
0: Oh, it. my really god! watch it. Oh. Yeah. And then, folks, we'll just cut and I'll go watch that for an hour and we'll come back. Yeah. And I'll go and listen to Billie Eilish's greatest hits. Oh, no. And <laughs> so I was like, oh, God, this is the way of the world now. And she hasn't even released 83 different coloured vinyl versions. Just before we move on to this album itself, I thought we'd just quickly talk about the other Beatles covering each other. And... Oh. Unfortunately, the only real example we have is Paul doing everyone else. Ringo doesn't really have the vocal range to do a lot of the other stuff. And George was never going to approach his own stuff, let alone uh, one of Paul or John's. Kind of the same with John, John. as well. But Paul does yes. amazing versions of All Things Must Pass, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, something, something well. imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's really nailed it.
1: Well, on that subject, actually, there is a YouTube video, Beatles singing each other's songs. But obviously, what you're talking about is released versions or live versions. L-
0: Lennon sings uh, a bit of Un- Uncle Albert, doesn't he? Which is insane.
1: Oh, does he? Yeah. Mm. George sings Get Back. Paul sings I'm So Tired. Yeah, It's quite a funny video, actually. But yeah, yeah, they didn't. I don't know. I suppose, well, of course, John wasn't around after 90s. 90... I mean, John wasn't really a live act, hardly at all. You know, you only ever did one full-length well, maybe two if you count Rock and Roll Revival, but two or three um, full-length concerts. But I don't know. I suppose they'd say of like all the songs to do, why would I do my old bandmate's songs, I suppose.
0: Because the that. audience wants to hear them. And, that is true, and yeah. They're, and they're yeah. paying you to be on the stage. Like I get it, yeah. As pandering as the Paul McCartney set list is, when he was being interviewed in 1989, and he was just like, you know, I just thought, what does the audience want to come and see? And then he opens the, the concert with Figure of Eight. I'm like, Paul, I don't, I don't think you've thought this mm. through here. Like, that's not even the big single from that album. You know, you probably should have opened it with My Brave Face. But I'm not on Paul yeah. and nothing. I'm also Army on Glass Onion right now. And
1: I'm completely confused, like, what we're doing. But we're <laughs> kind of both in each other's houses. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. This is like an acid
0: dream, a fever pitch, you know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what's real. I could be Anthony Rattuno right now. I could be Ken Michaels. No. I don't know what's going on. But yeah, look, to start us off, Rock and Roll was the sixth studio album by John Lennon. It was released February 1975 and reached number six in both the UK and US album charts. The single, Stand By Me, pinked at number 20 in the US, number 30 in the UK. So, tell me, when or where in your Lennon fandom did you come across this album? And without any spoilers, how did you first appreciate the music?
1: Well, I would say it's probably around the middle because he didn't really make that many solo albums. I was absorbing, I'd say, Lennon and Beatles almost simultaneously in like the late 80s, early 90s. Macca was still current at that time, so I was absorbing some of his stuff as it came out. But um, yeah, somewhere in the middle. And I I don't think my opinion of it has actually ever changed. Uh, And I did listen to it again this morning with an open mind, see if it changed, but it hasn't really. I, I find actually although we, we don't really think much of side A and side B anymore, we just think of it as like a, an album I, or a CD. I, I
0: still do, dude. Don't worry, you're not alone. That's good. That's good that you do, yeah. A co-host on another podcast I do, he doesn't give a fuck about it, he's, he's a digital boy, and I'm like, no, no, what open side two is so important in the, in terms of the sequencing? And he's like, yeah, nah, bro, sorry. So, yeah. we just Yeah, just to
1: say, I've always sort of liked half of it, and I, and I find actually, yeah, side A we, is... Most of the ones I like are on side eight, and it just sort of gets a bit... Um, Ooh. It just kind of goes on. And, of course, when you're doing these sort of more or less 12-bar blues, there are ones you've got to try and find variation. And I'd argue that in some of these songs, not all, some of them there's not really much variation, and it's all a little bit bloated. I mean, when we get to talk about the sessions and how many musicians are on it, you know, compared with uh, chobo which I was listening to also this morning, which is just... Chalk of, and Cheese. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a band. And when we get to Chobba, I'd say there's a couple of things that could have been added to that. Here is kind of the opposite. Some of the tracks really work. His voice is m- mostly great. I, I really like his voice, but it, it just gets a bit um, – well, the one thing with his voice, we know famously he didn't like his voice, and I think it's, it gets slathered in too much uh, tomato ketchup in some of these tracks.
0: Well, and it's just all a bit sort of overwrought. That time. Well, let's just point out one thing. If you go onto YouTube right now, folks, you, you can listen to the session tapes for this. The yeah. vocals in it are way better in those early tapes and during during the rehearsals, and what? you can tell it's John wanting to have that perfect Beatle vocal sound. Like because like all all of his vocals during the Beatle days are just you know it was George Martin producing it. What more do you want? Whereas mm. especially when he's on his own, he either seems to. Panic at the last minute and just put the, the safe vocal on. Mm. Or he just doesn't go for it. And there's there's a shorthand I've got for this album. Basically, they've got the same set list here. You know, it's all the, the same kind of rock and roll covers. There's mm. one technically uh, jazz tune on Choba, Snarva, if you want. And Summertime as well. Summertime as well, yeah. But, we, but with Johnny, you know, it is all rock tunes.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Lennon produces these songs better and there is a... A, a greater variety of sounds even if it's not a greater variety of styles like he just mm. uh, that the, the, there's a wider variety of just tones and stuff going on even if it is a lot of it is just like there is just a lot mm. of that and obviously Lennon is able to make that more interesting but his vocal from start to finish is 99% the same it isn't mm. particularly interesting whereas Paul the production is the same from start to finish, because it it is a band being done in two days, essentially, mixed mixed on the on the third. But yeah. Paul's got the better vocal, he's got a more diverse vocal, he 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 can tackle a greater variety of song. So right. whilst the end result is a lot more consistent and quite samey, at least the types of songs he could tackle were a lot more interesting. <laughs> like I mean Mm. You know, not not to spoil my thoughts on bring it on home to me, but I think Paul might have done it slightly better. But you sure. know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil things. Um, next point, though, title. Do you, like, do you like the title, or is it a bit on the nose?
1: Uh, I suppose, but uh, yeah, I, suppose, I don't know. Like one way, it's rock simple, and roll, baby, simple and direct. And yeah, it's one. I, I think it went so well. I love the album cover. I really think they did such a great job with that. Because there's obviously John in the Hamburg doorway. And I didn't, oh, one thing actually, I didn't notice for years the three um, sort of blurry figures, which is Paul, George, and Stuart Sutcliffe.
0: Crazy, isn't it? And
1: of course, everything with Stuart Sutcliffe takes on more significance. That fact that he's blurred, he's sort of a ghostly figure because he died, of course, in '62. Yeah. And with the neon, the neon light with the John Lennon rock and roll. So I think, I think the, um, the artwork improves the title of the album, if that makes sense. It's John Lennon, the rocker, you know. Makes sense.
0: So um, who who was Jürgen Vollmer? That's not a name I've heard. Is he in the astrid Klaus, Vormann crew?
1: Yeah, it was always three of them. I mean, Klaus came to see the Beatles first, Mm -hmm. and him and Astrid were together at that time. They'd had a row. He'd gone off. And then the next day he brought her, and I think um, Astrid brought Jürgen Vollmer. But Jürgen Vollmer's also very important because when John and Paul did their trip to Paris in '61 with John's 100 quid from his 21st birthday, they came across Jürgen. Oh, I'm not,
2: I'm not sure if that just,
1: guy. I'm not sure if they just came across him in the street or they'd arranged to meet him, but he was actually the one that, that did the Beatle cut for them for the first time. So, yeah, he's got, got a couple of games to fame.
0: Unsung hero. Um, yeah. Obviously... Yeah, he's always yeah. the third of those three, because
1: obviously Klaus they were very involved with, and Astrid, yeah, a few people were involved with, so, yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you know... You don't. I mean, I'm not sure when 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 he passed, but you don't see the name Jürgen Volmer appearing in many of the talking head shots in documentaries. But you will always see Klaus yeah. there, always sounding like always sounding like his Werner Herzog or something.
1: No, I like his voice, that sort of soft German accent. Yeah, that Klaus impression. is coming.
0: Hide the stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's such a good anecdote. Of course, Anthony Paul mm. would never be so bold as to copy the front cover of Rock and Roll on his album cover for Chaos and Creation in the Backyard or anything like that. <laughs> I'm not going to accuse him of anything. I mean, it's not like Paul also produced a Rock and Roll covers album over a decade after Lennon did. Yeah, but that's, pretty, did.
1: that's a pretty natural thing to do because they're, they're the, the kids of Rock and Roll, aren't they? That's why I feel like, not to jump the gun, but at the end, like, if we did some sort of post-1980 speculation, I feel like Rock and Roll's always there, I think, so... I don't begrudge him that at all. I feel like I feel like they probably would have. Um, John probably would have done another rock and roll album had he lived. Probably would have improved
0: on this one a bit. It doesn't make sense why in, uh, that. Um, well, obviously our last episode folks, If you haven't listened to it already, we we covered a toot and a snore in '74. After about two hours of irrelevant chit chat prior to that point, but yeah, we 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 covered those sessions and obviously. Alternative universes, split realities, Mandela effects. There is a reality out there where those sessions rekindled the relationship, or maybe he never got mm. back with Yoko or something like that. And rock and roll was a John Paul project, maybe even released under a pseudonym like Klaatu or something like that. You know, mm. it totally makes remember, sense. It does. You're right.
1: You know, there's been some really funny sort of uh, appraisals of the Anthon of the three tools. You know, the, all the yeah. stuff when they're at George's mm. house in the garden and some, some podcast has done some brilliant stuff like analyzing the body language of it and that bit where paul goes oh, should we do blue moon of kentucky as if like they hadn't sort of arranged it and george goes yeah yeah just a, just a short version <laughs> yeah <laughs> he just does like one verse and then, oh that's it but uh i i always one of my fun things to do is the is to imagine that with john there as well so the four of them in the garden and what the dynamic would have been it would have been quite amusing i think but uh, i think they would have jammed stuff in the end rock and roll was the glue that would have held them together rather shakily. Probably used like, Pritz stick. I don't think there would have ever been a glue that would have kept them together for too long, but, yeah, rock and roll would have been the Pritz stick that held them together for uh, 45 minutes.
0: 1982. <laughs> See what I've done there? Oh, oh God, I've just... Oh, I've just got that, yeah.
1: <laughs> Pritz stick. That's from my days of working in an office.
0: But, you anyway. know, 1982, the both of them singing That'll Be The Day Again everyone would have lost their collective shit. It is
1: yeah, it, well, it, it, it is. It is what it is. Yeah, well, whenever that... Um, that'll be the day in spite of all the danger. I don't know when that was rediscovered. That was in the 80s, yeah. Yeah, that would have been good for them to recreate that, but I don't think George would have been into any of that. I think we know that George only redid the anthology because he'd been screwed for millions by that.
0: Heresy. No, he did it because he wanted to make free as a bird. We all know this. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> perhaps he would have yeah perhaps he would have done it eventually anyway but i think that was a bit of an incentive but
0: anyway. have you uh, have you ever listened to the compilation album called john lennon's jukebox
1: no i saw the south bank show though very very good yeah so i mean i've heard the songs yeah because i've seen the, the south bank show but uh, yeah yeah it's good i what what's your step by bobby parker is one of my favorite songs and recordings ever even though it's basically it's the bridge between What did I Say by Ray Charles and I Feel Fine. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely that's gonna great. add that
0: to the playlist after this. Yeah, that's a
1: great song. I could just listen to that guitar like forever. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it is cool though that Lennon just had a jukebox that he took on tour with him in '65, and it basically has all the songs that will appear on Rock and Roll and Chopper at the same time. And he's just got mm. history in a little box with him right there.
1: Yeah. But the South Bank show, they kind of did this thing where they were... Uh, I remember a, view, a review of that when it came out, and it was just like, were Beatles songs just recycled versions of old songs? But, I mean, you can say that about anything.
0: I guess we're going to talk about Morris Levy, aren't we, today? So, yeah. Morris, totally uh, not scrupulous Levy. Yeah, we'll uh, get to him mm-hmm. shortly. Something I noticed about all, about going through all of the alternate takes for this album was that they were all longer and usually featured lengthy fade outs. So yeah. does this mean Lennon like realized how indulgent the sessions were and he wanted to tighten things up or is this just him being a you know a good self-producer, do you
1: reckon? Well, I think um there's a bit of a parallel here because uh if we go forward to Oasis they did their first couple of albums, definitely maybe Morning Glory, really good. And then Be Here Now, I remember when that came out, I was about 21, 22. And the first reviews of it were like, oh, yeah, she's brilliant. She's more of what we love. And then like a couple of more critical reviews said, yeah, but some of the songs are like two minutes longer than they should be. And Noel Gallagher, you know, is very honest stories in interviews. He said, oh, yeah, I, was, it, I put that down to cocaine. Uh, <laughs> because it, it just makes... If you think about songs which are made and you know there's there's cocaine around the sessions, it makes everything overblown, bloated, overwrought. And Noel Gallagher said a funny thing. uh, He said, You know, someone came up to me at the time and said, Oh, do you think, do you know what I mean? It's a bit long at eight minutes. You know that song, All My People (laughs) Right? And he goes, No, I think it should be fucking longer, to be honest.
0: (laughs) See, I love uh, that. I appreciate that, if anything.
1: Yeah, it, it depends what. As a listener, it sort of depends what mood you're in. You know, if you're really, if you into the song and at a party or something like that, maybe you like it being dragged out. But I think, yeah, I think that just points to the, to the debauchery of the sessions. It's just like, oh, let's just keep this going longer and longer, you know? So I think he, he came back. John Lennon had this ability. I think we talked about this last time, actually. And George Harrison talked about the tilt mechanism. They had this ability to sort of sober up to get the job done. So I think one of the strengths slash criticisms or weaknesses of this album is that it actually comes out quite slick.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Which is really kind of the opposite of the debauchery. I mean, I think, do you know if there's any songs from the original sessions that are on this album? Is it? Or did it, did he not use any of them in the end? Oh, the, the, uh,
0: the, uh, Phil, the Phil Spector stuff, you mean? Yeah. There are three or four tracks. I'm just going to quickly go on the oldpedia of wiki. Oh, well, because I, I was looking for that today. I couldn't find it. So yeah, uh, all tracks arranged by John Lennon except for produced by Phil Spector, which is You Can't Catch Me, Sweet Little Sixteen, Boney Maroney, and Just Because, so four of the tracks made it onto album. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, yeah,
0: okay. Um, I think Uh, think maybe Angel Baby might have been Spector as well, but that didn't make it onto the final album.
1: I love Angel Baby. (laughs) That, That came out Rosie in the original. She was 15 when she did that. The originals, the originals, that's
0: some like Mary Hopkins shit. That is That's. Is. <laughs> yeah. obviously. Well, I'll get on this with the individual songs, but just so much of this album lost out to later edits. Like, just because is perfect as a closing track with like a lot of um fade out and indulgent uh production, but mm. songs like Bebop Alula just sounded a lot better in that plastic Ono ah, that's good enough, rougher state. And Lennon mm. in, inhabits that world so much better than McCartney does. Like, if someone says a McCartney album's overproduced, I'm like, okay, what's your point? Like, that's a McCartney album. Whereas, like, you know, nothing sounds better to me than Well, Well, Well. And it's like, you know, mm. an, an all over the place, intentionally quite bad production. And that's really interesting. Whereas with this album, he's almost got this split personality where he's got this cokehead, pisshead artist who he's got to work with and then he he sobers up the next day and goes oh god that was me what was i doing i better not do that when i get back in the studio next time and then one (laughs) later and then he's back to playing a a 65 minute version of boney maroney
1: yeah but he like i say like unlike some of the rock and roll casualties he had this ability to to put it back together you know to go back the next day like you said yeah go oh blimey what was that let's sort it out so the album both benefits and – it's both a benefit and a drawback.
0: Yeah, we're, we're, we'll go through some of these songs later, but the the extra okay. tracks that we know of at least, mm. we've got Angel Baby. We'll definitely talk, talk about that later. Mm. To Know Her Is To Love Her, Since My Baby Left Me. Those were the two big ones that were put on later releases. Then you've got yeah. Be My Baby, amazing. Yeah. That Will mm. Be The Day, a song – if you don't know why that's important, folks – Go listen to another podcast because we're not going to explain it to you. Uh, thirty days, come on everybody! What's uh, not thirty days. It's oh. it was, it's just listed. I don't think it's even on the uh, video I, I watched. Um, there's a song called "Come on Everybody." He, oh Eddie Cochran, yeah, come on everybody! Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I that. Although it reminds me of "Come on People" by McCartney. I'm like, that's where he got the 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 "come on" spelling from. Right, right. There's a rendition of "Here We Go Again." Um, there's a really funny uh, rehearsal where Le- where Lennon's trying to teach the band "Lady Marmalade," and mm. I only wish Le- like Lennon was alive to listen to the Pink and Christina Aguilera version of "Lady Marmalade." That that would be really <laughs> funny to me. And there was also a-, a reprise of "Just Because" as well to round okay. things out, which would have been really interesting.
1: Which is the one that's got like a party atmosphere, and it's got like these call and response. I think that might be Since My Baby Left Me. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, anyway. Whenever I
0: read that title, I keep breaking into Heartbreak Hotel. Since my baby left me, I found a new place to dwell.
1: Well, yeah, I'm almost... Well, yeah, there's a link there because Since My Baby Left Me is Arthur Crudup who did the original version of That's Alright Mama, which was the song that really propelled Elvis Presley.
0: Wait, hang on. Do do rock and rollers just sample each other all the time and it's not a big deal, are you saying? Well, I think. I think... Yeah, I don't know. I think with rock and roll, you,
1: you are you are dealing with a, I mean, a fairly limited palette, really. It's quite amazing that, that for 50 or 60 years, people have been able to come up with stuff that is more or less original, you know. But yeah, I think in those days, well, you've got to remember, like, in folk music, for example, a lot, Bob Dylan used lots of melodies that had already existed, and there wasn't this sort of obsession with intellectual property that there is now, which is part of the way our culture has gone, really. So it was just like, oh, yeah, there's that melody. And if you, as long as you put your own words to it, then that's okay. So I think there was a bit more – maybe there was just a bit more of a
0: sort of communal spirit in those days. I don't know. Oh, yeah, no, there are so many songs where it's like if you look at the line this, it'll say traditional, arranged by, like, oh, that's yeah. not their song at all. I was, yeah. into, I was into a, a track by Dave Van Ronk called Luang Prabang, and I was like, oh, this is a really good melody. And it's like, no, no, that's an old Yorkshire, Lancashire mining song. From like the 1840s, he just put really? his own words. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But Luang Prabang is a place in uh, Laos. I've actually is been it, there. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it's weird. Yeah, when I came back from Luang Prabang, I didn't have my thing where my balls used to hang. Is the uh, <laughs> is, yeah? Oh no, no, it's a it's a classic anti-Vietnam protest song. You oh, you fucking you love. love it. Oh, um, right, right, right. And it's the guy who Oscar Isaac plays in the Coen Brothers guitar. Cat oh i film, love that. the sad yeah. film inside
1: inside lewin davis I inside lewin davis yeah. which
0: has my future partner carrie mulligan in it i will i will win her heart <laughs> one day i know i will <laughs> yeah um, i saw that
1: again last year it's a great film so that's based on yeah dave van ronk and i think dylan nicked the, uh, i think nicked the house of the rising sun sort of arrangement from dave van ronk so there was a bit of I uh, say communal spirit. I think it was a bit of uh, pilfery
0: going on as no, well. No, but what's that Stories great? Away, th- there's there's that great quote from Steve Jobs, isn't it? It's like artists create, geniuses steal. Yeah, great artists borrow, geniuses steal, something like that. Good um, artists borrow. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, because I, 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 George Harrison invented the sitar, as we all know. You know, he just walked in and went mm-hmm. ding 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 on revolver. It's like, oh, it's not that like there's a thousand plus years of cultural heritage that you are. Yes. inappropriately appropriating there george
2: yes <laughs>
0: um, speaking of uh silly opinions before we start exploring the history of this album and mm. the total non-fracar that was its production why mm. were the critics so savage to this album why don't they like this
1: uh i don't know I-, I think maybe some of it is they always get on the back of songwriters when they do covers albums you know, as if they're these machines that are just supposed to come out with only original music. I don't know. Were the, were the reviews
0: really bad? I never really looked at it. Particularly so. I was oh, wondering was it? if it was like, obviously, there's a parallel that I'm going to talk about in the next episode, where it's like, oh, McCartney's last album was shit-canned. I will go and retreat into someone else's songbook instead.
1: It's a nice thing to do, though, isn't it? It's. Mm. I mean, I, was, I remember, I know we're going to do Chopper another time, but... I was reading one of the Paul McCartney biographies, quite a good one, but I can't remember who it was by. And they said, yeah, it's almost like when in doubt, go back to rock and roll because it's sort of comforting and it's soothing and it's fun.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there's no more fun, really, for someone of Paul or John's era to go in a recording studio and do a load of these songs. You just can't really fail. They're always going to sound good because they're great songs, you know.
0: They're great ambassadors to, like, introduce us to this music as well. Like, McCartney had it uh, on his 1989-1990 tour, a lot of these classic rock standards as well. And it's like, if anyone's yeah. going to be the ambassador for these songs, it's going to be the coolest songwriters ever, you know?
1: Mm. But I think with the critics, I, I mean, I don't think this is a great album by any means. I think it's about half of a really good album. So That's I think fair. they That's fair. probably were fair in, in one way, but uh, they, they probably had some other agenda He'd probably have had to be around at the time to really know that. I think well, there's all sorts of scores being settled and agendas. Who knows?
0: So it was Mind Games that came out before this and then Walls and Bridges came out after?
1: No, actually, Walls and Bridges came out before this, which is Mind Games came out before this and then this was supposed to come out next as part of this deal with Maurice Levy, but then he put out Walls and Bridges and quite cheekily had about 20 seconds of Ya Ya, you know, the one with Julian on the drums, at the end of Walls and Bridges. Oh, a really? Fuck you to Morris Levy, yeah.
0: Right. Well, you, you yeah. know what, you know what, folks? With with that segue, we're going to talk about the Morris Levy incident. Mm. Anthony, if the Beatle yeah. fandom were like Scientology, you'd have to at least be OT level three before you knew the offhand story behind Come Together and Morris Levy. Mm. Folks, for anyone who isn't in the know, there is indeed a connection and... I'd like to say it's complicated, but it just comes down to the green, the moolah, the big dollar. Yes. Cast your mind back to 1956. The great Chuck, totally not controversial for fucked up reasons, Berry has released his hit single "You Can't Catch Me," which features the lyrics, "Here come old Flat Top."
2: Yeah.
0: You fast forward to 69. Hey, up, keep it cheeky. And uh, John Lennon finds himself writing a campaign song for Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary ends up in The Slammer for bullshit charges. Lennon's back in the studio trying to figure out this song. And Mm. for whatever reason, that we'll get into, the line, Here Come All Flat Top, also winds up in The Beatles Come Together. And that was a rather successful lucrative B-side for the band. Remember, folks, th- th- this is back in the day when B-sides could be in the charts along with the A-side due to radio play and all sorts of weird charts. That was rent. a double
1: A-side, I'll have you know.
0: It was a double A-side. That was
1: a double A-side. Anyway.
0: <laughs> but, but, but yeah. OK. <laughs> Morris Levy finds out this track exists. Now, you could either you know, go under the assumption that this is just a very avaricious move, or it could just be a genuine case of a man who owns the song rights to a, to a track trying to get his fair cut. But, Anthony, a man who obviously has many interesting opinions, let me ask you, what do you make of this lawsuit? Is it reasonable or is it frivolous as fuck? Well, uh, when they actually recorded
1: Come Together, uh, your man, Macus did say to John this sounds a bit similar. I don't know if he actually said you can't catch me. I suppose he did, yeah, because of that lyric. And actually the swampy, the more swampy version that come together, mm-hmm. you know, obviously on Abbey Road, um, that was credited to, to macker's idea. So obviously the similarity was there. But it's very interesting, this whole issue, because now now with um, you know YouTube and all, all these kind of access to music, if you put in Led Zeppelin plagiarism in YouTube <laughs> and you don't know anything about it, you will be quite, shocked listeners they
0: didn't write any of their great hits
1: oh my god well no no it's not that it's mostly the first album in fairness i mean led Zeppelin did loads of great songs a great band but Stairway to heaven's
0: the big one
1: yeah i don't know because that's only really the the intro and i was thinking the first album um quite a lot of them i mean dazed and confused there's a song that came out like a year earlier that goes Been days and confused for so long, it's not true. The Led one's exactly the same. Does
0: it go bong, bong, bong? That's the thing. Because, like, there's that classic McCartney quote, isn't there? You know, they sang, and I love her, but the song is doo 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 that George came up with independently. So, Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're not lawyers, folks. We're not lawyers, but let's get into it, yeah. Yeah,
1: but no, it's it's such a grey area. Another one um, that hardly anyone seems to know about. You know, The Last Time by the Rolling Stones. This could be the last time, maybe the yes. last time. I'd... Look up the Staple Singers, The Last Time. I think it's called This Maybe or Could Be the Last Time. And I mean, it's just exactly the same. It's like, How did this get, how did this like pass by? And the reason is that, you know, if you didn't have the Staple Singers album or, you know, then you could get away with it in those days. But uh, the funniest thing about this is that, of course, the version of You Can't Catch Me that eventually ends up on rock and roll that we're going to talk about is done much slower and sounding more like Come Together, which is quite funny. I think there's, that's I, another... intentional production dollar.
0: choices there, 100%. Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah.
1: definitely. But the other thing is uh, I've heard people say, oh, Run For Your Life is a rip-off of Baby Let's Play House. Because he says I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than to be with another man. But the rest of the song sounds nothing like it. I mean, something you know, George Harrison's most famous song, the first lyric is from "Something in the Way She Moves" by James Taylor. So, I think we've got to be a well, bit
0: careful uh, with this. Yeah, yeah. And "Roll Over, Beethoven" as needs a shot of rhythm and blues as well. So, like, yeah. is that is that cover ripping off another cover? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think
1: I think tributes and nods to other songs are kind of quite charming. I quite like them. So you've got to look at the overall effect. And I don't know, I'm torn here. No, I but think in what, the end, business what about, what, is
0: business. What about placeholder lyrics, though? We know the Beatles would map out songs with other people's lyrics or their own just kind of, nah, 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 you know, mm. a, a bit like how David Byrne might just literally talk in tongues to, to like get the right syllables out. But, mm. yeah, you know, it is very possible that John had every intention to change it to, here, come old Yoko or something. And he just left it in, maybe out of arrogance, maybe he just thought it was a tribute, maybe he thought they would like it. There is definitely a case here, you know, I I just did an episode on the Ruttles with my main man Andy. Mm. And some people, if something's successful, will just try and sue you and get some fucking money out of it. This isn't revolutionary, folks. Going back to the Stones and the Verve... Did the Verve ever make a penny off of that song? I don't think they did, but the Rolling Stones made about three million quid.
1: Oh, is that right? Bittersweet Symphony, yeah, because it sounds like an orchestral version of the last time. Again, irony of ironies. Yes, the staple singers should be earning off that song, not not the Rolling Stones. <laughs> oh dear. And yeah, know, think...
0: is this about what's right, or is this about who's got the best lawyers and the most money? You know, I think you
1: just you've knocked the head, you've knocked the nail on the head there, mate. When
0: <laughs> it's a shame when you're in
1: it? um. One of the famous murder cases in England involved someone who was um, um, had a mental age of, of a child. And essentially his murder trial was one very, very well-educated lawyer in his defence and one very well-educated lawyer on the other side speaking in uh, legalese and lots of, lots of long words that the defendant didn't understand. So it's his life on the line. It's being decided by two lawyers. So I, th- I think you might have something there. You know, it's business. Business is a machine, you know. Corporations... There's not much room for human emotion, to be perfectly honest. It's just business. Mm. As well.
0: <laughs> it is like a fucking mafia, you know. If you don't do what mm. they want, they'll put a hit out on you. And I do have to have to have to be clear to both my audience and yours. It wasn't Chuck Berry that was suing Lennon. Right. I mean, Berry had performed only a couple of years prior with Lennon on the Mike Douglas Show. Uh, which is the famous performance where Yoko starts screaming and Chuck Berry has a very much, like, what-the-fuck face. Uh, and but,
1: someone brilliantly wrote in the YouTube comments, Chuck Berry looks like a werewolf in mid-transformation. <laughs> if you look <laughs> at that <our> video again, it <laughs> fucking does. That was yeah. a genius.
0: Yeah, definitely topic. like 1940s wolf-man yeah. werewolf, you know?
1: Yeah, um, but not full werewolf. Like, the, the ears haven't pointed and <laughs> everything. That's why he's in mid-transformation. I was going to ask you, yeah, does the Chuck Berry one, is it just here come old flat top, or does he say come grooving up slowly? I don't think I he does. I think it's just here come old flat top was the... Yeah, see, if it's, yeah, see, that changes it slightly, because I think if it's just like one line, it's a nod to Chuck Berry. And if you're doing a rock mm. song, if you're doing a rock and roll song, it's more than likely going to have the three chords that we talked about earlier. We've Maybe already
0: established one line can ruin Lennon. Yeah,
1: yeah, and like I say, Run For Your Life is the other, is the other example
0: so yeah
1: yeah it's a (laughs) a messy business
0: so in 73 the case was brought before a judge in new york and before the december trial it was settled out of court as Mm. most juicy things that would reveal nice evidence for the public normally are (coughs) jeffrey epstein um Mm. according to levy this was the settlement lennon had to record three songs by big seven publishers on his next album the songs he intends to record at this time are You Can't Catch Me, Angel Baby, and Ya Ya. Obviously, mm. Angel Baby does not appear on the final album. We will discuss why. Yep. Um, mm. Right now, uh, uh, Anthony, please, be, give me some <clears throat> armchair psychology. Okay. Uh, was the fact that... Oh, no, 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 no sorry. I need, I, need, I, need, I, need, I need to explain it first. Basically, okay. what happened is, folks... The, the agreement was Lennon had to put these three songs on whatever the next album was. And we're going to talk about the production shortly. But for some reason, one of those songs did not end up on the next album. And we'll go into more detail shortly. But Anthony, give me some arm, armchair psychology here. Do you think mm. that this was a production or a track tracklisting choice? Or is this Lennon being the kind of guy who you know throws bricks through people's windows if he loses a court case... Being spiteful and petty and saying "fuck you" to Morris Levy,
1: um, almost certainly that, yeah. Because we've already talked about two two "fuck he he'd done already. So uh, yeah, I just uh, there's a good interview when he's um, during his immigration battle when he says, oh, "At the end of the day, I've just I've never liked authority," and uh, you know, somebody who grows up with that instinct, there's a, there's just always going to be that thing that you can't resist doing, which is just like sticking the boot in, you know.
0: Oh, yeah, like, some, so, I mean, why didn't someone in Nixon's administration say, just let him in the country and he'll shut up, that's the best thing to do?
1: Yeah. No, I, I've got
0: to keep him out. <laughs>
1: irony of irony, of course, he would have survived if they'd kicked him out.
0: Oh, so don't oh, don't say why that. No? Oh no, god, it's such,
1: terri- it's such a terrible thought, isn't it?
0: Look, but... if Lennon had just been OK with being bothered on London streets, he would be alive now.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely anyway um what were you saying well no what you were saying because of course this wasn't the next album that came out anyway which was part of the trouble mm-hmm. so like i said earlier he included like 30 seconds or whatever it was of "Yah Yah" with julian on drums um i don't even know why he did that because the agreement was to have three songs on the next album so why put one why you may as well just put none but he brought out walls and bridges basically because he obviously despite apparently having all you know all this drunken debauchery every night which clearly it, you know, it wasn't every night, 74 was very, very productive for him because he wrote the whole of, well, well probably most of Wars and Bridges, um, put that together. And then I think with some of the same musicians, I mean, he he generally worked with people like Jim Keltner and Jesse Ed and Klaus Vorman. He had a very productive 74. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, th- I think if he could just stick the boot in in his own way to Morris Levy, I think he'd do it because then we got Roots, you know, we're going to talk about the Roots issue as well. Yeah, tell me about Roots, what happened with Yeah, she so brings out Walls and Bridges. I mean, Walls and Bridges is an album I think a lot of, as does our mutual friend, Owen Ling, that you mentioned earlier.
0: No, every, every Beatles podcaster seems to think that Walls and Bridges is massively underrated.
1: Well, no, it's funny, when I did, um, for John Lennon's birthday, I did a, a rundown of... Lennon albums, including his contributions to Beatles songs, we ended up with 19 albums, and I did that with Kit O'Toole and Ken McNabb. and both of them had Walls and Bridges very near the bottom of the list, mm-hmm. and I was quite I surprised because it is, I suppose in one way it's, I mean a critic would say it's a sort of poor man's Plastic Ono. It's a similar idea to Plastic Ono of just bearing your soul, but with a bit more production. But I think it's great, and I think you know, being the kind of person he was, he wrote these personal songs. He wanted to get that out, you mm-hmm. know, as much for his own sake as for the public's. So that was a reason. And then that got him in more trouble when he was sued for, I think it was $42 million. Just a, you know, a little bit of chump change there, <laughs> but Levy sued. Oh dear. Let's get this right. Was it EMI Capital and John Lennon? I don't know if that was like 14 million each, <laughs> you know, I don't know how that was uh, divided out, but, um, yeah, it was a very messy business,
0: really. And
1: yeah, and then there was the, the Roots issue after that.
0: Yeah, before we get into Roots, let's just okay. go through the uh, chronology quickly. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this wasn't the smoothest of rides. Uh, so you've got 73's Mind Games. Then after all of the Morris Levy stuff, there were you know, certain parallels between McCartney and Lennon going, going back to do a covers album. Maybe the kind of Beatles... Uh, Craze was over. Maybe that pushed him to do it as Mm. well. But essentially, Lennon decided to start this project with Phil Spector. Yes, folks, Phil Spector is back in the picture. The guy who didn't let it be. All things must pass. And the Plastic Ono Band. And imagine. And a murderer as well. Um, (laughs) Essentially, though, John had the the genius idea, dude of letting him have free reign over the project. Yeah. Uh, what, what, I'm Ronnie what, what on this on?
1: one, Phil. Treat me exactly like you treated your ex-wife. <laughs> that's that's the, the gist of what he said to him, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, when asked uh, in 1980 during the infamous play Playboy review, he said, I just said I wanted to be the singer. Just treat me like Ronnie. We'll pick the material. I just want to sing. I don't want anything to do with the production or writing or creation. I just want to sing. And... Mm. Uh, that didn't exactly pan out. Um, famous, famous last words. Mm. Though, I'd argue, dude, on paper, a Lennon-Spectre rock and roll covers album, on paper, rather like communism that we're going to talk about in our next episode.
1: <laughs> That's funny. I just said. I was just thinking that, yeah. Communism's good on paper as well. Yeah,
0: it sounds, yeah. Like, it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> what happened?
1: Um, well, just to backtrack very slightly... The huge irony of the fact that, that Phil worked on Plastic Ono Band is that Plastic Ono Band is a stripped-down album that had three producers. And uh, the brilliant story, I don't know if you've ever heard this, is that Phil Spector only joined the Plastic Ono Band sessions about halfway through, and John actually put an advert in maybe Melody Maker, saying, oh, Phil, if you see this advert, can you report to the studio because we're waiting for you? Something yeah, cause like they,
0: that. because they couldn't find him or something. It's insane, yeah, isn't yeah. it?
1: But, um, yeah, he worked on Imagine as well. And, you know, there's some great footage that I'm sure a lot of the listeners will have seen of Imagine. And um, he's very restrained, it seems. So I think because they had these successful collaborations, he probably might have thought it would have it would, gone all right. But the other problem with these sessions, because you, you had, um, I think they said up to 30 musicians. And I was looking through the list. Uh, the personnel for the album, I and mean, you've got some really good people like Steve, Cro- Steve Cropper from Booker T and the MGs, Jose Feliciano is playing one of the acoustic guitars, but I think the acoustic guitars were just more or less three or four people all doing the same thing.
0: Jesse Ed Klaus, yeah
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, Leon Russell, keyboards, Bobby Keys on sax, and then Hal Blaine who's in the Wrecking Crew, like a legendary drummer.
0: No, for, um, for me yeah there was Mike Melvoin who was one of Tom Waits' pianists as well. All right, that, yeah. was, uh, piano, that was electric piano that was a name that immediately stood out to me. But yeah you are right. I mean Appa- th- apparently over 30 musicians were trying to get in. Uh, yeah. It was it was it was all booked in in AM Studios in California for the for the right. for, for the first sessions. Apparently according to Wikipedia Spectre shows up in a surgeon's outfit and fires a gun into the ceiling hurting Lennon's ears and then on another occasion a bottle of whiskey is spilled on a mixing console and Lennon's banned from the facility.
1: I think that one is true about the whiskey yeah because that was in that was in that's been in a couple of books as well. I think Phil Spectre according to May Pang I think it was would turn up in a different outfit like one time he turned up as a looking like a karate expert and uh yeah but i think really both musically and in terms of handling all these people yeah it's great to have like four or five great guitarists but to play rock and roll you don't need four or five great guitarists you just need one you know or possibly two if you want to change it up a bit so you got all these people it's, it's almost like too much of a good thing in terms of the musicians um but then clearly you know there was really i don't know if they had an engineer as well presumably they did but it was just like you know the lunatics in the asylum, and no one, no one taking care of it.
0: Yeah, kind uh, of like uh, most Stephen King literature. You can just explain it away by saying it was the seventies and <laughs> cocaine.
1: Right? You're not a Stephen King fan, are
0: you? Oh, I absolutely love Stephen King, but you have oh. to ad- admit that it's mostly just coke-fueled mania that is his writing style. Um,
2: right.
0: <laughs> speaking of which, though. Um, this all took place during the infamous Lost Weekend with May Pang, am I
1: correct? Hmm. Yeah, it seems like the Lost Weekend, it seemed like most of the debauchery would have been the first six months, say. I mean, toot and a Snore that we talked about earlier, I think that was, was that March? I think that was. The two famous Troubadour incidents were January 74, Pussycats was obviously around March, April. So, yeah, it's a tricky one.
0: Oh, well, that's interesting because Spectre's car accident was in march of 74 as well so maybe maybe there's a bit of congruence there
1: yeah the lost weekend is is such a problem really i think again as i was talking to you earlier the, the john lennon story up to about 1973 isn't that contested like goldman had a different spin to to most other people i'd say but it's the lost weekend because in the official version that sort of that Yoko is that Sean is now inheriting from Yoko seamlessly, it seems. You know, Mae Pang's pretty much airbrushed out of it. So it's so difficult to know. I mean, all these stories. Do you have any insights about the story of that Paul was instrumental in getting John and Yoko back together?
0: It breaks my heart every every time I think about it. Yeah, John, Do We know that's John, true, John, though. Maybe maybe you should get back with that woman that, like, you know, I say broke up the band.
1: Do we know that's true, that that happened? It's
0: rumoured to be true. Paul's Mm. never said outright in an interview, yes, I got John back with Yoko. Mm. It makes sense, though, like if anyone was going to make John get back with his girlfriend, it would be his boyfriend.
1: Uh, Yeah, Yeah, you've been spending a lot of time with those ladies, haven't you?
0: (laughs) I was literally (laughs) listening to them on Ranking the Beatles today, actually, (laughs) uh, to shout out another couple of podcasts.
1: Mm. No, but uh yeah, it was during the Lost Weekend and I think it was it was the first half of Rock well sorry, the original rock and roll sessions were the first half of the Lost Weekend, the other ones were the second, and he got his head together and I think he did the the rest of the album in, in like three or four days, I think. You Which know? is
0: pretty much a parallel with uh with Paul really. If you if you spend mm. more than a week on a rock and roll covers album, you're probably yeah. doing it wrong, aren't you?
1: Yeah, it's not difficult really to get uh to get a sound, you know, and if you've got if you just stay sober and you've got a few good people, you can't really go wrong. I don't see how you could really get that go Easier that badly. wrong. Easier said
0: than done. Easier said yes. than done.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: Apparently unbeknownst to Lennon, Spectre had been stealing the master tapes during this whole time though, and he disappeared yes. for several months. Bar one cryptic phone call where he rings up Lennon and says, I got the John Dean tapes from the Watergate scandal.
1: Yeah, I would like it, if you don't mind, if we can put a clip of John talking about that with Andy Peebles. So.
0: Oh, let's just cut to that right now, folks.
3: And that was the first one where I gave Spectre his head, although it came to a different kind of head in the end. Mm-hmm. Another long story, if you look at the album, there's about five of Spectres, and then there's five I knocked off in five days, which was Bebopalula and the, the Holly stuff and the Carla Thomas, Sam Cooke song and all that, because he, he ran away with the tapes. He called me... Yeah, he hmm. ran off with the, the 16 tracks and locked them in his garage or somewhere. I couldn't get him, and he called me one night. A very far-out guy, you know, he called me, he said, <laughs> he calls
4: me and said,
3: He called me, and we're in the middle of the session, because I'd never got that close to him on the Imagine and the Plastic Owner things, because he'd been very good and just come and gone away again, and I hadn't really got to know him. On the rock and roll, it took me three weeks to convince him that I wasn't going to co-produce with him, and I wasn't going to go in the control room. I was only... I said, I just want to be your singer. He used to treat me like Ronnie. We would pick the material. I just want to sing. I don't want anything to do with production or writing or creation. I just want to sing. So I finally convinced him anyway. Long story short, one day when he didn't want to work one night, he called me and said, the studio's been burnt down. <laughs> In the early days, I didn't know about him, you know. I didn't know how far away he was. So I said, oh, the studio's burnt down. So anyway, a couple of hours passed, the studio's burnt down? So I get somebody to call. The studio hasn't been burned down. That was the Sunday. The following Sunday he called and he says, on the phone, hey, Johnny. I said, oh, there you are, Phil. What happened? We're supposed to be doing a session. I've got the John Dean tapes. I says, what? I've got the John Dean tapes. Watergate. Right, Watergate. I said, what are you talking about? He says, the house is surrounded by helicopters now. They're trying to get him I said... Mm-hmm. The house is surrounded. I'm buying this garbage, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I'm saying, the mm-hmm. house is surrounded, you got the John Dean tapes. I, I said, well, what about our session? Aren't we supposed to be finishing something? You know, it's costing money
2: mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: He said, I said, what are you doing? The gym- I'm the only one that knows how to tell whether they've been doctored or edited mm-hmm. or not. I mm-hmm. said, well, what he was telling me in his own sweet way was he had my tapes. <laughs> Not the John Dean <laughs> Watergate tapes. He had my tapes locked in the cellar in behind the barbed wire and the Afghan dogs and the machine guns. So there's no way you could get them. So that album was stopped in the middle for a year. We had to sue through capital to get them back off him. By then it had been going on and on and on, and it was the Tampax Lost Weekend period as well, and it was all hell was going on. <laughs> and I somehow got committed to producing Harry Nielsen's album, which... <laughs> That's when I sobered up in Harry Nielsen's album because I took Keith Moon and Harry and all them and, and i lost the John Dean tapes. I'd lost them, so that album was quit. I'd promised Harry in a drunken stupor I'd produce him and we rented this house. I thought, get them all in one house and they'll behave themselves. So I get, uh, we've got Keith Moon. We, it was the wrong
1: <laughs> thing do to thing do. do. So, yeah, I like that. I've got the John Dean tapes. It's crazy. No one it? knows where they are except me. And it's like,
0: <laughs> le- 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 has to, like, Decrypt that that insane message from a murderous psychopath. Because of that, the album's put on semi hold, and then with Mm. Spectre's car crash on 31st of March 74, which puts him in a coma, which is not going to make it any more stable, Mm. the project was put on indefinite hold, which starts the whole Walls and Bridges session. Then Al Khoury or Curry. The, the head of AR and promotion for Capital Records somehow, possibly with the uh, spending of $90,000 by some accounts, and managed to uh, reacquire the rock and roll tapes. But mm-hmm. Lennon doesn't want to break stride, which is the phrase I see copy and pasted on every single website. So there's definitely some copy and pasting going on here. Um, yeah. But. Obviously, because of the lawsuit, he was contractually obliged to Levy or Levy to put three songs on the next album. He puts the fuck you, ya-ya at the end. Mm. That lands his ass back in court. Levy won $6,795, which, to be fair, was actually quite a bit back in 74. But that victory was short-lived because he did something really stupid with the tapes that Lennon gave him to kind of peruse, didn't he?
1: Yeah, so John gave him a rough tape to say, basically to say, yes, we are doing these songs. Look, you know, here's a rough demo of them all. And Maurice Levy put out the album Roots. John Lennon sings the rock and roll hits or something like that. Uh, I think the front cover, I think it's a picture of John from about 68 or something like it's that. It's
0: weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cheap but, as fuck and it looks awful.
1: Yeah, I haven't listened to that for ages, but there is an argument to say that some of it, some of that sounds better. Because at least it's raw. It's a bit like um, I had Ken Warlock on the show a few months ago, talking about we were talking about Double Fancy, and a lot of people prefer the Double Fancy stripped down, and Ken was arguing for the more produced one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, I mean, I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong, but uh, I do remember the Roots one. It, it kind of sounds like it's um, it's mastered, or perhaps it wasn't mastered. More to the point, it sounds like it, it's coming out of a car radio or something. It sounds, but if you're in the mood for that for something more raw, some of it sounds a bit better. It's one of those things where if I could have gone back, I probably would have just slightly improved Roots. You know, again, found a happy medium. As in most things, you know, the sweet spot's always in the middle somewhere.
0: Again, it's like, why hasn't Yoko just paid the estate just to get those tapes back and then just re-release rock and roll? Mm. second disc is Roots. You know, if this was McCartney, it would be out by now, not just the 50th
1: re-release of imagine that's all I'm saying yeah and um yeah and th- so this album I think was rushed out uh, to basically to stifle that, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah to stifle the roots uh, one but yeah I think roots is I'm sure you, I'm sure you can just listen to it for free somewhere but roots is worth uh, worth a listen at least.
0: Also the name of an iconic American TV series as well, in case you got confused.
1: What would Alan Partridge say? It's the album rock and roll could have been. It's
0: the album rock and roll could have been.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, I managed to get that Wings clip into one of my shows. One of my guests was talking about, uh, he heard got to get you into my life and thought it was a Wings song, but he said, I was six years old, so forgive me. So (laughs) I couldn't resist putting that clip of Alan. That's funny.
0: (laughs) But in retaliation... Lennon caught the uh, the sumi sue you blues, mm. as it were, and then he took Levy back to court for essentially illegally using demos that he had sent him. And yep. whilst Levy originally tried to sue like Lennon for like forty two million, that didn't happen. Uh, Lennon won back one hundred forty four thousand seven hundred dollars, which. I'm not saying it was immediately spent on cocaine, but eventually
1: it would have been. <laughs> uh, you, I'm just dying now to say, um, uh, shall we Shall we haggle? How much is this house worth? £250,000. Would you take
0: 249000 Oh, my oh, pang, yeah. I've trod on a spike. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I was thinking he could have countersued it for £42 million and one cent or something. Yeah,
0: you're right just there, John. What are you doing, man? You're right there, man. Yeah, you know. No, I'm not going to do a Geordie accent. That was really shit. I'm going to cut
1: that out. Right. Anyway. Uh, do not include
0: that in your cut of this episode, by the way. I'll sue okay. you. I'll sue you like Morris Levy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> anyway, yeah. So they were suing and counter-suing. and it. Yeah, as you were saying earlier, in the end it comes down to lawyers. I mean, I think the truth gets buried somewhere. The truth yeah. uh, gets further and further away. But anyway.
0: I think we'll agree, though, that Lennon was not doing what he was told purely because... He is incapable of doing what he is told.
1: Yeah, he had that rebellious instinct, which uh, I, I yeah. salute him for.
0: I don't think the Yellow Submarine movie would have been made if it was just the John Lennon solo band, like you know Buddy Holly and the Crickets or something like that.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah, now that we've gotten all of the backstory out of the way, I think it's high time we uh, went through the songs themselves, don't you? Yep, let's do it. So, starting us off today is a song that has a hell of a lot more relevant history for us today than I could ever have imagined, really. Hmm. Big Bop, eat your heart out. This is Bebop Alula. Hmm. Right, the original Bebop Alula was performed by singer-songwriter Gene Vincent of Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps, went to number five in the UK, number seven in the US in 56. He wrote the track along with his manager, Bill Sheriff Ticks, Davis, and it turns out the phrase itself is rather mysterious, uh, as written here on the ever-trustworthy Wikipedia. Davis claimed the song he wrote with Gene Vincent after listening to the song Don't Bring Lulu. Vincent himself sometimes claimed that he wrote the words inspired by the comic strip Little Lulu, though the phrase mm. itself could also derive from Be Baba Liba, the title of a number three R&B hit for Helen Humes in 45, although the kind of Be Baba Luba or the Be refrain was used by many Latin American band leaders to encourage kind of audience participation. It goes way further back than I could have ever thought. In addition to that... The Beatles also played b Buffalo during their early years, including a performance heard on Live at the Star Club Tapes in Hamburg 62. And McCartney Mm. performed it himself in 91 for Unplugged. This was also the B-side for the Apple single of Ya Ya, released in Germany later that year. Anthony, you've sat very patiently, very quietly. (laughs) The floor is yours. What are your thoughts on this song? How does it work for you as an album opener?
1: Yeah, I think it's a good album opener. In fact... um... Again, this morning when I was listening to the album, um, trying to sort of pretend I'd never heard it, trying to, I know it's impossible, but trying to do that. Plain coy. I was kind of thinking this is good, yeah. I mean, it chugs along, it's quite faithful to the original. I mean, Gene Vincent is one of those people, when I was discovering the Beatles, there was always these names from the 50s that were always together, Elvis, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, Little Richard, and it was always Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, the Everleys, all those people. Um, It's got echo on the voice, sort of 50s echo but not too much i think later on a couple of them are a bit too much so it's yeah good opener and um yeah sort of This kind of promised perhaps a slightly better album than it actually was that's so, yeah. so
0: funny i've got the exact mm. opposite opinion i think the rest of the <laughs> way better than this <laughs>
1: that's funny so this what would you the... give it out of 10 then
0: what i'll give that at the end of my review on i oh, don't okay. I, I, I don't kiss and tell motherfucker this is the textbook definition of fine. It's fine. I mean, look, it's yeah. it's fun to hear Lennon do this track, but it's also fun to hear Lennon do any song. Mm. And I've got a distinct impression that a lot of what I like about this song is more down to the original and what the session musicians are doing than what Lennon's doing.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, you can't really go wrong with this song. It's such it's such a great... I mean, the would be Okay, it's like it's like what Babalu Bab. You know, it doesn't doesn't mean anything on its own, but it just it sort of sounds everything. good. <laughs> it means everything and nothing. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, You're right. Paul did this on Unplugged, and I really like that version as well. That was a that was a great band. He had Hamish and uh, what's the what's the guitarist Robbie, the one Macintosh, from the Pretenders. Yeah, yeah Robbie McIntosh, Yeah, good band. But yeah, I was happy enough with this. I'd sort of give it an eight out of ten. Not amazing, but good.
0: Now, folks, I'm going to review this album like. I would review a Beatles album. I would review it within its own context. You know, the worst song on this album versus the best song on this album. And for me, this is a smack bang five out of ten. Ooh, like, I, I like the kind of clunky, purposefully like syncopated beat. And, you know, it, mm. it isn't exactly what I expected. But like McCartney on Chopper, they both seem to not pick the the most lively... Opening track, they seem to pick like the third most lively one. I'm like, no, nah, nah, put slipping and mm. sliding on first. Let's really kick this thing off with a bang. But it's what, it's a bit of a what's the on
1: What's the opening on Chubba?
0: I've the, forgotten. O- the opening on Chubba is um, side two's. that oh, it's Kansas right City. There, and then Kansas City on side one. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And it's
0: very yeah. much like, oh, if we'd have opened up with I'm going to be a wheel someday or Ain't That a Shame, mm. spoiler alert what my two favorite songs from Chubba are. Um, <laughs> I think it would have opened with a bit a bit more of a bang. But rather yeah. like how Yaya is the perfect lead-in to Just Because, I reckon this song purposefully may have been put in first place because Lennon knew for certain what was going to be the second song on the album.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And we turn to a, a tune whose title would later go on to be used by Stephen King. It all links, folks. It all mm-hmm. circles back around this is stand by me Of course, that was the instantly recognisable voice of John Lennon doing Benny King's Stand By Me. Benny King wrote the track with veteran songwriters Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, names that you should be very familiar with if you've ever looked at Beatles' uh, liner notes. And Elvis, yeah. Oh, yes. Mm. Original mm-hmm. track was released in 61, got to number four on the Billboard charts and number one on the US R&B charts because the US has more charts than that it does viable political parties...
1: And more flavours of ice cream as well.
0: <laughs> Sorry, George Carlin. Um, yeah, George yeah. Carlin, yeah. <laughs> Hi, George. From mass Graves, Mass graves. graves. Everyone's concerned about Mass Graves. Yeah. I love George <laughs> Carlin. That's not going to make the cut, though. Um, <laughs> then in 86, when Stephen King's movie adaptation came out, it had an immense second wind, was the top ten in the States. Once again, I'd argue that besides Peggy Sue, this is probably the, the most impactful song in terms of, like, culture and continuing success. I mean, in 2021, this would be the only song on this album that people would be able to sing the lyrics of now. But enough of my my historiography, dude. Let's get into Lennon's interpretation of this classic. I mean, for everything negatively said about this album, this is Mm. still easily one of every Lennon fan's favourites, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, because he does something a little bit different without changing it massively so obviously he slows it down he's got this percussive he's got this percussive guitar thing that sounds like it's probably about three or four people playing an acoustic guitar line which kind of works in this way and then uh you know the song is great because it's just stand by me it's a universal phrase you know it's what it's like lean on me you know it's a similar thing and then um yeah just a great production then when he sings stand by me you can kind of tell that he really means it You know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'd probably upset you if I said that Paul didn't sound like he means it. No, cut that. Sorry. (laughs) It's a pointless, it's a pointless comparison. I'm sorry. Um, no, it sort of sounds like he means it and, uh, yeah, it's just well delivered and it's obviously a song he loves as well. And that always comes through. So, um, yeah, I'd probably give this, I don't really do 10 out of 10, so I'd probably give this nine or Yeah. I suppose if you were going to nitpick, this song is a little bit, the song Stand By Me is a little bit repetitive. But because it's so good, it more or less gets away with it. But um, Mm. I think I'm going to, this is almost kind of positive discrimination uh, in the 21st century. But I think a lot of the time, a lot of black singers have a sort of effortless soul in their voice that white singers often have to work a lot harder. Mm -hmm. Case in point, if you ever want to look up the Rolling Stones playing with Muddy Waters in sometime in the late 70s, and I think they're doing Manish Boy, mm. you know, and Mick Jagger's really trying, trying really hard to sound really funky, and Muddy Waters, I think it's Muddy Waters, uh, just takes the mic and he's just got that richness in his voice. So I still wouldn't say that this tops the original, but yeah, pretty solid. Yeah, I'd give this nine out of ten. It's funny
0: pretty that you good. should say that about. Black artists, because mm. if that different, if that difference wasn't true, then the phrase "blue-eyed soul" wouldn't exist, would it?
1: Yeah, or white reggae. You know, I mean, I think uh, you know the Clash did a great job uh, of you know quote-unquote white reggae. I wouldn't really use that because I don't think musical styles are, are, have to be
0: determined uh, by race. No, of course.
1: Determined not. by race. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, no, because
0: I mean, I mean, like mm. you know. One, You know, there's a very famous video on YouTube where 50 Cent basically says Eminem's the greatest rapper of all time, mm. despite the fact that hip-hop is inherently African-American black music, and there's no problem with that. I mean, all the greatest blues and rock and roll, you know, icons of all time were all black, you know. Mm. Before Elvis, of course they were.
1: Well, Elvis is that strange bridge, because I think, I think this is... This is quite well documented. A lot of people that heard his early songs thought he was black. So he, he and Sam Phillips, who, who ran Sun Records, I'm not sure if this is actually his he quote. He didn't try to hide see... it, did he? He
0: didn't. You, you know, like no. his marriage to Cynthia. <laughs> no, no. I think he's been quoted
1: slash misquoted, but he said something along the lines of, uh, "If I could find a white singer who sounded black, yeah, I don't know why. I don't. I don't really see the logic in that because I don't know. I suppose." You want oh, you want the white That so much about poster. our
0: society that it's depressing, isn't it?
1: Sure, absolutely, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a,
0: it's a mean, sketchy quote. I mean, going back to Eminem, he does have a line in one of his songs where he says, "Like I'm the latest man to use black music so selfishly to make myself wealthy," and it's like, <laughs> you know, that, that that is it. George Harrison stole from Ravi Shankar. Mm. It all it it's all it's all circular. For mm. me. I'm going to go with a straight up 10 out, 10 out of 10. This is a track that has continued the success of the original. I don't think the original would have had the success it had in 86 without Lennon's interpretation in the middle to keep things afloat. Right. Not only is this a good cover, I'm, I'm going to put my dick on the table and say this is this is one of the best covers of all time. Right. This is, I'm sorry, someone's closing the door behind me. This out this song would have been worth the price of purchase for many fans. As far as I'm aware, there is an awful lot of conversation surrounding this song, and I don't know what I could say that hasn't already been said. You know, the original. I think fantastic. it's
1: helped. I think it's helped by the video as well, as is uh, one of the later songs. The oh, old grey was totally yeah. yeah, yeah. I think when there's a visual, most people are most people are visually simulated more than in other ways. So it's uh, the video helps. Yeah. Hundred percent.
0: You know, um, just like starting over, or woman. You know, the fact that they have music videos just means mm. they have more of a resonance because they trigger more synapses in your brain. You know, that's yes. just a physical fact. You know, um, yes. If you're if are trying to memorise something for an exam, the best thing to do is to write it, to say it out loud, to think it in your brain, and have as to try and try try and lick your notes if you can, try and sniff them, try and get as many. Synapses mm-hmm. in your in your in your brain going, but the ones that Lennon mm. fires in this song are quite McCartney esque ones. I'm going to see that on this album a lot. A lot of saccharine, sappy love songs, and I love that. I love that Lennon mm. stepped away from Yoko, and he's not fucking singing about himself or Yoko or the fact that his mom died. It, we we just get generic universal songs here, and right. his voice is perfect for that. And mm. you can add this album to the grand heap of albums that would have been just improved if Paul McCartney was involved in it, you know, amongst the sure. other albums that would have been better if John Lennon had been involved. Um, mm. Do you think there's any credence to the fact that he might just be singing about Yoko or May Pang here in the way that he sings about whoever he's in love with at that particular moment?
1: Yeah, I think you just sort of, you you channel people. I mean, I do this when I sing as well. You channel things, so it doesn't even necessarily have to be about that. But
0: you think about me a lot,
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they, you know, they might. Uh, if something sounds a bit like, you know, Lady Madonna sounds a bit like Fats Domino or Elvis. Paul probably, while well, he's doing the vocal, he's channeling them, and it helps you because you think, oh, this person's with me, you know. Oh, Fats Domino's in the room with me. I will just, you know. So I, I think don't, he's channeling. I don't know
0: them. Who Paul was channeling with women and wives? He said muddy waters, but. It just Man. sounds like he was singing with muddy water in his mouth, if you ask. Um, weirdly, I remember in my old ICT classes back at St. Francis of Assisi Catholic Technology College, uh, back in back yeah. in the mid-2010s, uh, me and my classmates Jacob Hanna and another kid called Sam would just a cappella this song every lesson, much to the mm. annoyment of our teacher, like we were in Pitch Perfect or something. It was never good, but I'll always remember those days. Right, next up Anime we have a musical device that is a much more McCartney esque trait, which of course is the medley, the two part song. This is Rip It Up, mm. Ready Teddy. Originally, both these tracks were released by one, Little Richard, and being that mm. both these tracks were performed by him, it makes sense that he was not... Well, actually, it doesn't make sense that it was written by him. It was written by the D duo Robert Blackwell and Joe Marascalo, respectively. Mm. My favourite thing about this, though, dude, is that it's not only a medley of two songs by the same artist, it's an A and B side together.
1: Oh, right. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Okay. Rip It Up was the A side. Ready Teddy was the B side. Come on, tell me you're a fan of this
1: song, please. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, again, solid eight out of ten, I'd say. Good energy. What have I got here? Yeah, the sax is quite like. Um, I was thinking of Greece. Funnily enough, the Greece soundtrack's one of the things I grew up with. Um, that we used totally to listen makes to that sense thematically,
0: doesn't
1: it? Yeah, it sort of sounds a bit. It sounds slightly like a parody, but it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean again, just great energy, great songs. Can't really go wrong.
0: No, like so if there was, was a rip it up time. if there was a rip it up ready teddy scene in Back to the Future, it would probably sound like that.
1: Yeah. It's very short as well, isn't it? Isn't this like one minute thirty? One minute
0: thirty three and there's two songs in it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And what yeah. I quite kinda of liked is that it's Lennon being really economical. Of mm. obviously you're a big fan of the Nagra Reels, you know in your heart of hearts that the Beatles could put any combination of three 12-bar blues songs together and make a medley that'll blow your balls off. And (laughs) yes, Lennon could probably do 100 different versions of 100 different 12-bar blues songs together, but no, he was really cool. He was really meta. He was appealing to nerds like me. He does an A and a B side, and it's like, Ugh, do I do two songs that sound the same or do I lose a song that I like?" No, I just mm. do a quick two song medley. It's really fucking awesome. I think it's really clever mm. and this to me is what the whole album should sound like just uh, unfettered energy, more mm. you know more cocaine than sherbet. Uh, it's everything that was lacking in Bebopalula. Th- you know, this could have mm. opened the album as well. And yeah, that
1: would have been a good opener, actually. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, oh
0: yeah, like, Quick, just, just like breezy one, opener, one and done, exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah,
0: and there's no Phil Spector on this, and I really, I really enjoy that. Um, mm. There's a bit of a, a manic bipolarism I experienced with this album with the Phil Spector stuff because on one hand I love the John Lennon stuff, but on the other hand I love what Spectre was doing as well, but for different reasons. Whereas with Mm. the Lennon stuff, I mean, okay, another shorthand for this album is that all the best songs basically sound like they could have gone on any other John Lennon album as filler. Mm. Like, I think this track, Boney Maroney, You Can't Catch Me, kind of semi-ironically could just go on walls and bridges you know as like a bonus track or as something to close side side one just to fill up time very much in the same mm. way that Paul would use the the tracks from Chobber to you know, kind of pad out 12 inch maxi singles and stuff like that but mm. since Lennon stuff here is so obviously part of the Lennon production style you know whereas the McCartney production style is very George Martin esque and John's is a bit more unique there's just more to sink your teeth into here, even if it is just a minute, 30 seconds, you
1: know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it does the job. It's good.
0: Pressing ever on with our ever-present past, we move on to a track that has more baggage than your relationship with your ex. No, <laughs> this isn't a mid two thousand Spielberg comedy thriller. This is You Can't Catch Me. So I bet some of you out there were thinking, my gosh, Anthony's right, that did sound an awful lot like Come Together, the Mm opening track from Abbey Road, an album you might have fucking heard of. Well, you ain't wrong, folks, this is the song that started it all. Without this song, we would not be here doing this podcast today. Uh, The original was written by Chuck Berry in 56 and was a moderate hit. The sources are a little iffy on where it placed in the charts, because it was the 50s, but If this song's history wasn't already complicated enough, this is also the first track of the album that is produced by the late great, not so great, actually horrible, Phil Spector. But dude, now I've gotten all this legal jargon out of the way, the prosecution can rest, the jury can be seated, which means you are now free to tell me about your thoughts on this song.
1: I don't know. It's just just another rock and roll. It's just a, a rock and roll song, really. Yeah, he obviously purposely made it sound a bit like come together. So it's slower than the original. I think I'd probably prefer Chuck Berry's version really. Just mm. just faster. A lot of rock and roll. If you're gonna do it slower, there's a couple of other ones on this album where if you're gonna if you're gonna make it slow and it's a rock song and it's fairly repetitive, mm. you've got to add something. It's a very risky thing to do. So I think it's much better just to have it fast, really. It's got the conga drum. That's probably Arthur Jenkins, I think, who worked with Bob Marley and Peter Tosh mm. and a few other people. That conga drum's sort of uh, quite a trademark of this album. Sometimes it works. There's, there's a couple of songs later where it's got really, really busy percussion that's just a bit too much. But, yeah, they get away with it here. And That's
0: it's all just, spectre, though, 100%. Like, that's him uh, going, maybe, you yeah. know, John, we've got to do something to shake up this song just a little yeah. bit. Like, we can't just have... You know, I think
1: John different. may have been, I don't know, a bit guilty of <laughs> overblown stuff as well. But yeah, maybe. No,
0: I, uh, anyway, yeah, John, it's not John bad. John might just to be, be too in love with these songs in general anyway. I think McCartney might have not respected the material more, but might be just been afraid of the material more than John was to put his own spin on it and do his own thing. Paul might have been a bit more reverent, shall we say, in a much more dogmatic sense.
1: Yeah, another sort of 8 out of 10. It's quite symptomatic. I'd, say, I'd give this ten. whole album 8 out of 10. <laughs> I feel like I'm just... There's a few slightly better ones and a few that I don't like much at all. But yeah, it's decent. It's all right. Different enough.
0: I'm just going to add this audio back in later. And I'll just say, okay. And for Rip It Up, Ready Teddy, I think mm, I'm going to give it an 8. Yeah, I'll give it an 8. Mm. And I'm going to cut back to now... Like the last song, dude, this this is a wickedly lively and raucous rocker. Mm. What more do you want? There's a cracking Lennon vocal. I love the electric piano here. It's either Nicky Hopkins or Mike Melvoin. It's beautiful right. with those rolls. I guess there comes a point when you're just reviewing rock and roll covers and you start to run out of nouns and mm. it gets a bit worrying, you're like, oh my God, am I am I, am I keeping the audience interested? Because And I'm be not going is... to have
1: loads more to say about <laughs> yeah, these Socks, yeah. really. It's just... I like it,
0: I don't like it, it sounds like it, it doesn't sound like it. We are quite limited yeah. in how we can review this. But, going back to those bongos, I can't be the only Paul McCartney person listening to this podcast right now that thinks, fuck me, that sounds a lot like wildlife. be <laughs> just mm. <laughs> kind of and uh, yeah, there was uh, a lot of funky ass stuff going on with this one. A nice, stark mm. vocal, definitely leaning more towards the mediocre end of the album, unfortunately. Right, but there's a lot of novelty to that mediocreness as well. And mm. same thing with Choba. I can just put this album on or Choba on in the background and just enjoy it for what it is. You don't have to pay too much attention it is easy listening for what it is yeah pressing on to the fifth song of the day and gotta say i'm quite excited for this one this is ain't that a shame The song you just heard there was originally by the iconic Fats Domino. He was also the co-writer along with his partner Dave Bartholomew. The single came out in 56 and went number 35 on the Billboard charts, number 10 on the pop charts, and number one on the US R&B charts. Not even sure if it was officially released here in the UK. And if it wasn't, that really would be a shame. But, Mm. Anthony, Mm. don't sugarcoat this. Just tell me how you prefer Lennon's to Paul's obviously superior version of this song. (laughs)
1: <laughs> now i'll reserve judgment for when we we listen we review re- chubber but no i really like this i don't think you're ever going to top fats domino's voice on this but yeah this is one of the ones eight and a half or nine this is above just just the delivery and that great piano intro as well some really good keyboards on this album mm. i don't know which one of the people it was but yeah it's good this is a, the first song john lennon ever, ever learned on the guitar as well so wow special um Special meaning in his life.
0: I mean, Old Fats has to count his lucky stars that both of the two greatest songwriters and the greatest songwriting duo of all time have covered one of his tracks. Mm. Uh, apparently, though, his favourite cover of this song was by Cheat Trick, which sounds like a
1: joke. They were quite Beatlesque, I'd say. Whatever that means. Yeah.
0: Whatever that means.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, in terms of, like, rhythm... This one's definitely a lot more faithful to the to the original and yeah. I enjoyed the thrilling kind of runaway train feel the song has. Like it, it almost feels like it's getting away from John quite a lot, which was quite thrilling.
1: A very raw vocal as well, wouldn't you say?
0: But <laughs> it felt like a twist and shout oh. kind of vocal, like, oh he's hurt mm. himself. Brilliant. You're right though, the instrumental's great at the start. Essentially, all of my compliments to this song are the exact same compliments I'm going to be giving to McCartney's version, but just to a slightly lesser degree. Like, I'm no way calling this a bad cover. It's just mm. that, like Oh Darling, for example, Paul's just more appropriate for this song. Um, right. Len's vocal still is amazing. I love, like I say, the rawness the way you can kind of almost feel the vibrato bouncing through your earphones in your ears. Mm-hmm. There's, the, the, there's a certain kineticism to that, to, that, to that track. But it isn't exactly the best commercially available version of this song. I mean, the Macca album version's better, the Macca live version is better, and then you've got Fats himself. I'm, I am going to put Cheap Trick at the bottom now. I, I fucking thought that one sucked. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> For me, I'm sorry, folks, it's going to be another 8 out of 10. I don't dislike much of this album (laughs) at all. Mm. I like the gimmick. You know how it's like you either enjoy Ringo going... (laughs) ..or you don't? And do I enjoy listening to someone whose vocals and songwriting I enjoy just playing rock and roll standards... Yes, I do. Mm. So therefore, I'm already biased against it. It's a Marmite concept. It's not a Marmite album. It's You're either going to like John doing this in your brain before you even listen to it, or you're immediately going to write it off. And I haven't. And that's why I enjoy songs such as our next song, Do mm. You Want To Dance. So this song was first written and performed by Boyd Freeman, who took the song to number five in the United States Top 100 chart and number two in the Billboard in 1958. It would go on to have several successful covers in the following years, including Cliff Richard and the Shadows, which went to number two in the UK. Uh, and then it was also covered by the Beach Boys, which went to number 12 in the in the, U, in the US in 65. And then in 1972 by, oh no, Bette Midler in Seventy-two, which went to number 17. So, Anthony, there is a huge mm. tapestry of covers here. How does Lennon's fare?
1: Not bad. Just below our, our sort of uh, eight standard, I'd say. Probably seven and a half. <laughs> it's got this very kind of busy intro. That's A, a couple of songs are guilty of that. Um, again, it's quite slow. It, it's a tiny bit ponderous. It's not terrible at all. You know, do you want to dance? Do you
0: do? This is a wing song. It just kind of,
1: <laughs> yeah, there's other ones where he says sounds a bit more impassioned. That's the kind of John Lennon rock and roll I like, you know, because it's built on twist and shout money, rock and roll music. You know, those early ones. I think if you listen, if you listen to this album, along with you know the BBC cuts or some of those early cuts from early Beatles records, this this guy sounds a lot older and a bit kind of slightly jaded. It's quite a jaded album thinking about it. But this is a, this is fine, you know, probably seven and a half.
0: This to me is a song that Lennon would clearly give to another one of the Beatles during a live set. This is not, yeah, maybe his ballpark. Really, I've already said that that, that this is a wings song, but I don't think I'm I'm, I'm over exaggerating there. I'm not saying mm. it's wings because it's naff, even though it is naffer than most of the stuff on the album. But the jangly twangly guitar, the campfire atmosphere. Sing along vocals and mm. again more wildlife style bongos. Like this, the end of this song literally sounds like the end of Some People Never Know from Wildlife. Maybe right. Lennon was listening to his counterpart Paul more than he ever let on. Mm. But I mean, okay, second slow number of the album is it as iconic or as timelessly classic as Stand By Me? No, no, but I think there's still quite a lot to like about this. Mostly because it doesn't, and I'm saying this as someone who's not an expert in them, it doesn't sound like a song that he would typically approach. This sounds like quite a unique sound and style for him. Mm. Mainly because it is kind of lame and nav and tacky. So just to hear him do it has a lot of charm value, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, maybe novelty value. I don't know. Novelty Paul, value. Paul would have yeah. done this well. This would have suited his voice really well, I think.
0: Well, to me, it sounds like a George song, but um, uh-huh, maybe. yeah. But that's just because dance is in, is in the title, you know.
1: <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: Coming to the end of side one now, and closing us out, we have a song with a very Ringo-esque song title. Indeed, this is Sweet Little Sixteen. Of course, this song is the second and importantly not third Chuck Berry cover from this album. Hmm. then we go back into court. Of course, the original by Berry came out in '58, reached number two on the Billboard 100, and number one on the R&B bestsellers, Number 16 in the UK charts. It's clear that the common running thread here is that if it was a number one R&B track in the states, the Beatles probably had a copy. Now. I've kept this one intentionally short because I can I can feel like I'm going to ramble a bit about this song. Mm. Talk to me about Sweet Little Sixteen.
1: OK, uh, I think this is one of the worst ones. Oh, in thank fact, God. When I, oh, thank
0: God.
1: OK. When I was on the Under the, the Cover show, I put this in my um, bottom five. It's not terrible, but um, I've got my guitar here. I'm just going to demonstrate. So on the BBC version, what you really need with this song is like... you've got this uh little sixteen it's you know, different though
0: this... you know i mean it's not what you expect
1: at least yeah no sure yeah i mean it, yeah if you're expecting uh, exactly like the original then yeah it's a, it's a nice surprise but it's just it's one of the outtakes we'll talk about later that they also do on the bbc it's it's just oh it's just drag so badly you know. Yeah, I don't have to give this 6 out of 10.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of in the same ballpark as you. I'm kind of torn, like Natalie Imbruglia here at the moment. Um, Because on one hand, I feel like this is an out-and-out, lower mediocre number. Like, I've got no outside nostalgia for the song. And a bit like Bebop Alula, there's not a lot going on in terms of what Lennon's bringing to it here. Mm. But moralistically, I prefer this way more than Peggy Sue, which is just an impression. Like, at least this is slightly a little bit different. Yeah. The problem is that he does the same thing later on the album, this same kind of dirgy, heavier sound with Boney Maroney, and Mm. the latter is the far superior track, and it kind of invalidates this one a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of that, dude, was just a fancy way of me saying, yeah, it's all right.
1: Mm. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is probably uh, the one I'd mark down the most.
0: The most? Yep. Wow. Okay.
1: Maybe. Yeah.
0: I'll give it. I'll, I'll give it a six as well. Yep. And now, opening up side two, we have—you guessed it—another rock and roll standard. Who would have thunk it, eh? This mm-hmm. is slipping and sliding. Again, Lennon here is showing himself to be the true Little Richard fan. Paul can go fuck himself. As today here, folks, we have another hit based on the architect of rock and roll himself. Um, Though Richard has no credit on this track, it is instead shared between Eddie Bocage, Al Collins, Richard Wayne Penniman and James H. Smith. Because, dude, apparently every rock and roll song with like 12 lines of lyrics and a 12-bar blues... Needed four songwriters to get it done for some ungodly reason. Anthony, as someone who both hates the Underworld song Born Slippy and someone who loves the McCartney song Sliding, I need you to be the impartial one here on Slippy (laughs) and Sliding. So please tell me your take.
1: No, I think it's great. Again, I think all the times I heard it originally was with that video from the old Grey Whistle Test. It's quite a nice musical trick, actually, that get, gets it away from 12-bar blues. And uh, I was actually demonstrating it this morning. I was recording the intro to one of my own, to one of the Glass Onion shows. It starts in E and then it cleverly goes to D mm. while in the intro. Yeah, just just great. I love this one. I'd give this one nine. Yeah.
0: Nine.
1: Just, just loads of energy. Good piano again. I really like the keyboards on this album. And uh, It's just a bit more, um, it's not like laden with all this kind of, Baggage, musical baggage, let's call it. It's yeah, just uh,
0: yeah, it seems to be one of the more one and done takes of yeah. this album.
1: I mean, you know, Little Richard's greatest hits. I mean, they're just it's just all good. You can't really go wrong, and you're never going to top Little Richard. But this is the John Lennon take on it, and it's yeah, I love it.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, like nothing John Lennon could write could be as salacious as "Tutti Fruity." Yeah. If, if you know the real meaning behind that song. But that is not for this podcast. That's what Wikipedia is for.
2: <laughs>
0: for me, I'll give this one an eight. Uh, like you say, a lot of energy. This opens up side two with a better bang than side one's opened with. Mm. It's certainly got a lot more balls than, well, that's all right, mama, from the Russian album. And I'm saying that as someone who actually really likes that song a lot as well. hmm The band are just going a million miles an hour here. That's one of my favourite aspects of this entire album. Yeah, it's not particularly unique, and the sound's not that different. It's one of the more generic tracks on the album, but Lennon just cranking up the speed by 20% on any rock track seems to do the job, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Was this a B-side, maybe, to Stand By Me, or is that not right? I thought it was. Yeah, good B-side, anyway. Yeah, either way, yeah, really good song. I was only thinking that because those was the two they did on the Old Grey Whistle Test.
0: Up next, we have a song that Lennon would have had to have paid Paul McCartney personally for had he made the album only a year later. Mm. Oh, the magic of music publishing, eh? Morris Levy, eat your heart out. This is Peggy Sue. Now, to me, Anthony, a mm. Peggy Sue is just a girl who wants to take on a more masculine and dominant role in the bedroom with her fella. But I won't go into any more detail than that. You, you can work it out yourselves. Of course, the original Peggy Sue was one of Buddy Holly's signature songs. It was written for him by Jerry Allison, Norman Petty uh, and Holly himself. It came out in '56. For the lead single for his debut album and reached number three in the US and number six in the UK and number four in Canada in case fans on the run fans are listening. Now, Paul has always been known as the Buddy Holly man, as we know. How does John do in leaving his stamp on their shared idol? I don't think he's ever.
1: I think the two recordings they've done, the words of love from Beatles for Sale was fine. He did some good Buddy Holly covers in that. There's a video in the I think it's the San Regis Hotel, what are those? No, I just yeah, don't like this particularly. It's fine, but again, it's this busy per- percussion. Which Yeah, um, that
0: that that roll that's just constantly going like it's a jungle adventure or something.
1: Yeah, that's it, jungle, yeah, that's a good uh, good word to use. But uh, Buddy Holly's Buddy Holly's version does have that kind of it's not chugging, yeah, whatever that word is, I don't know. It's sort of rolling thing. But it's just, uh, I don't know, for some reason it just doesn't work. It just, it seems a bit unnecessary. There's a couple, two or three on this album that just don't seem necessary.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, what about you? honestly, I totally get that. Of all of the inoffensively mediocre tracks on this album, this is my favourite.
2: Right.
0: But, and I know how this is going to sound like utter heresy, but for me, this came across as something like it came from Denny Lane's album of Buddy Holly covers, Holly Days, from 1976, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is an unofficial Wings album. It's kind of naff. But, you know, Denny Lane's version of Rave On or Heartbeat, which is also the theme for a UK historical soap drama, if anyone doesn't know, also called Heartbeat. Mm. It's pretty much the same. It's just an impression, rather than some of the more original takes we get on this album. Mm. But in John's defence, when it comes to Peggy Sue, more than any other song on this album, there ain't a whole lot you can do with it. It's Peggy yeah. Sue. Who, you know, you've kind of got to go dum da 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 dum da da. You know, you can't. I you know, imagine if he would have done this sweet little 16 kind of shtick with this song, it would have been totally unrecognisable. You've got to do it at the right speed, yeah. the right cadence, the right delivery. Otherwise, it's not Peggy Sue. But if you're not Buddy Holly, do it differently. Just do it differently. Even if it's worse.
1: I think just the voice and acoustic guitar works. Like I said, John did a few of these songs, sort of Busky in a Hotel Room. Paul did some Buddy Holly covers, didn't he, in the 80s. It's good with just acoustic guitar and voice, I think. It just doesn't need all this other stuff. It's, otherwise, yeah, you're just doing an inferior impression of Buddy Holly. Oh,
0: so, yeah, no, seven. I mean, I mean,
1: I'll give it seven being Joe. Yeah, seven.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm going with a six. I'm going to go lower, lower, lower than you just to, just to okay. get some recognition, be controversial. Um, and now we come on to song number 10, or shall I say, songs number 10, as once again we have another medley. This is bring it on home to me slash send me some loving. What's rather interesting and different with this medley is that not only is it two songs from different releases, but it's not even two songs from the same writer or performer. The first song, Bring It On Home To Me, was first written and performed by Sam Cooke, and the second track, Send Me Some Lovin', was uh, another Little Richard's tune that was written by returning songwriter Joe Marascalo and newcomer Leo Price. But we should address the elephant in the room here, Yes, this is another song from Chopper. Yes, I do prefer the Paul McCartney version more. But more importantly, what does Anthony think? Anthony, as the resident Lennon expert, mm-hmm. I'm totally okay with you saying that the Lennon version is better. I'm prepared for it. So just just give it to me like pear cider made from 100% pears.
1: Well, I don't really compare them, so I'm not... I'm just talking about this one we're and saying, Beatles
0: podcasters we are here no, we to needlessly compare contrast and hate on Yoko that is what we were no, born we to do no we don't no
1: no 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 <laughs> <laughs> I don't know it's like two. it's a medley but isn't the second song just the same really it's sort of send me some loving do, 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 do. It,
0: yeah it, this is it, where it, it kind it fails, of drags, it? it just fails it
1: just kind of drags a bit yeah, I feel like you've got a massive agenda for this podcast haven't you <laughs> just to say how great Paul McCartney is I suppose but, it's on your show
0: isn't it yeah it, it, it is also going to appear on my show but anyone listening to mine right now make sure you do check out Glass Onion because I don't want Anthony to be burnt out by John Lennon me, me, I want him to continue with his show so send him <laughs> some love please send him some loving you might say yeah this was okay The poor one is just better. But the problem here for me, the medley just doesn't work like the first medley does. Like, obviously, making two 12-bar blues songs fit together is like, you know, following the Lego instructions. It's not that difficult. And Mm. maybe bring it on home to me, send me some love in two different artists, two different writers, two different genres. Mixing them together wasn't the best idea. He went for it. I admire Mm. him for that. Entirely be different, try different things. You know, this is the rock and roll covers album that is much more experimental than anyone gives it credit for. I will put my reputation on the line for that statement. And case in point, there's vocoder in a 1950s throwback rock and roll album. Fucking yes. Like, I'm a huge Stevie Wonder fan. And any vocoder is more than welcome on any album regardless of context. Uh, you just That's that's all I need, dude. Judging it on the scale of the rest of the album it could do a little bit better, but I don't dislike this one. It's just a bit a, a little bit naff.
1: I like the piano intro. It just yeah, the voice seemed to be really slathered in echo again. I just think it's a bit unnecessary. I don't know why he had to do so much with his voice there. Could but... you
0: imagine John Lennon right. who was self-confident how different the world would be? There'd be no need for Yoko, for one. start oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but she was an emotional rock for him, a real uh, supportive element in his life. But I think, what if he just had that innately? Because he, he seems to, in some instances but then like mccartney you you peel back a a micrometer layer thin element of his armor and it just reveals this very self-conscious very worried artist that clearly reads all of the reviews he gets you know we'd like to think john is a bit more aloof here but i don't mm. think he was as a poor mccartney podcaster with no expertise in Lenin.
1: but lots of negative opinions
0: regardless I think I've given this album a a, a better review than you so far. Um, (laughs) Anyway, coming in at number 11, we have a song that again sounds like it could have come straight from the debut Plastic Ono album. I guess you can work out my review here, Uh, and perhaps Anthony's as well. Let's play the clip of Boney Maroney. Okay, so the original version was written and performed by Larry Williams, another Beatle name that you should know. They performed two of his songs twice in their official canon, Bad Boy and Dizzy Miss Lizzie." Bernie Moroni was his third single. It peaked at number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number four on the US R&B chart. Annoyingly... I'm already running out of descriptive language to describe rock and roll covers, so fuck knows what we're going to yeah. do with Chopper. We're
1: nearly there, don't worry. We've only got <laughs> three left.
0: What What do you think of Boney Maroney, bro?
1: Yeah, again, it, it's all right. <laughs> again, seven, seven and a half out of ten. Just sort of that repetitive riff and just drags a bit. Wrong!
0: Wrong! Loaded. You are wrong, <laughs> Good sir. vocals,
1: though. Always good vocals.
0: Folks, this is the... The missing song from Goodfellas. This is the missing song from Casino. Like, that perfect 1990s Scorsese crime epic. This is a brilliant track. I don't know what you're... Th- Folks, uh, Annie's opinions do not reflect the opinions of Paul or nothing. We are two separate ent- entities. We're two separate legal corporations. For me, one of the highlights of the entire album, this is definitely on my Lennon playlist now, mm. on loop. I think everything you said there was my exact review, but said in a positive aspect. Like, I love that repetitive riff.
2: Right,
0: right. He really just gets into the groove and the funk of it. You've got Mm. that dense spectre wall of sound, those distorted guitars, you know, just that specterization that makes his sound what it is and so enjoyable. I mean, morally, I don't like the fact that Spectre's producing it, but by fuck does he produce the hell out of this song. Mm. And I just think think it's really fun. Mm. You know, it doesn't have a particularly heavenly lick. It's not particularly complicated. But you know how Lennon was like, I can't really play the guitar, but I can make it talk, you know? Like, that's this song through and through. It's a simple rocker, and yet he's able to make it say so much more, probably more so than he even deserves to say. Right. Also, just as a little aside, he totally likes this song because it's got wordplay, right? Bony Maroney—that's the Mm. only reason why John Lennon likes this song. It sounds like a title from In His Own Right, you know?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean it's not bad. I'm not not saying it's bad at all. It's just I don't know.
0: You heard it here, folks. Anthony said it was bad. You heard him. He said
1: it's bad. (laughs) Like the next one, yeah. The next one because it's fast. It's bouncy. (gasps) Yeah, oh,
0: yeah. oh, right, folks, honestly, this has been one of the most fun episodes I've done ever, purely just because of how much disagreement I've had with my well, my guest or his guest, depending on who you're listening to. But yeah, yeah. our penultimate song is Yah-Yah, forget your yeah-yes, this is Yah-Yah. Yah-Yah was a hit single for Lee Dorsey in 61, got to number seven on the Billboard 100 and number one on the R&B charts. No surprises there. It was written by Dorsey and a man named Clarence Lewis, Morgan Robinson, and Morris fucking Levy. He wrote this song. I'm not sure what, how the mm. credit was split. He's got a writer's credit. I'm not saying he got it through unscrupulous means because he might have said the word yah ya" in the studio instead of... Uh, excuse me, my name goes on that form right there to sign and dot it. But it seems awfully coincidental that a Morris Levy song, Morris Levy song, would appear on this album, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think it's. I don't think it's amazing, but I just like it. It's just a bit nice and bouncy. Because the last, the last three, the previous three songs are like three of the ones that I don't think really work. So it's nice to have this one here. You know, it's not set the world alight, but it's back up to eight.
0: I love how we disagree on side two so much. Like, this is really exciting for me right right now. (laughs) I mean, folks, there is nothing worse than when two podcasters agree on an album. It just makes for a tepid listening. Sadly for me, this is where the the hits start running out. This is a little too mediocre, a little too safe, a little too simple.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's a throwaway, yeah, I'd I'd agree. But I'd still give it eight because it's up-tempo enough.
0: Mm. A, yeah. it's more like
1: hate.
0: <laughs> you know, a lot of songs rest on the crutch of this is a nice song to listen to when you listen to the album in full. Yaya's not going on a, on a compilation. It's just going to be listened to in between Just Because and Boney Maroney. That's the only context in which I'll ever listen to this song.
2: Hmm.
0: It's a John N rock and roll cover where I like the b- the chorus and not the verses. That's like saying you breathe oxygen, it's kind of a given. Mm. I mean, just like my sexual prowess, it's fun at the time, but entirely forgettable the moment you move on to the next one. <laughs> Although, what I will say, dude, in terms of sequencing, this might be entirely intentional, because this rather gutless number is the perfect palate cleanser For the big emotional closer, that is the next song. And I fear you don't agree with me on this point. But we are going to move on to the final track of this album. The final track of the official listing, anyway. Which is... Just Because... Now, at first, Mm. many of you may have thought you were in store for (laughs) Just Because, which appeared on the Russian album Chobber, Snova." Take Your Pick. But this is not the same Just Because as Nelson Hawain or Hawaiian's version of Just Because. This is another entirely different song, also called Just Because by Lloyd Price. It featured on Lloyd Price's 1959 debut album, the exciting Lloyd Price, which uh, also featured a song called Lordy Miss Claudy, which also appears on Chobba Snova pick your title. Uh, it's all connected, like I said, but for no reason other than Just Because. Anthony, what do you mm. think of Just Because?
1: No, I love it. Yeah, great. Great ending song. Ironically, I think John Lennon said in an interview that he didn't he didn't know this song. But in the intro, he says, oh, this is a song I used to know when I was 15. or 10. And he says, "Oh, maybe I was 13 or 23. Yeah, so apparently he didn't know it, but Phil wanted him to do it. But yeah, I love it. Just, again, great vocals. And he just, even though he, maybe he didn't know this song when he was a kid, but it still sounds like he means totally. it, so and it's got that nice bit at the end the the spoken coda at the so end so
0: many people don't like that yeah. and it's the reason why they don't like the song Oh, oh I love thank it. thank god right. you know what folks at the end of this episode <laughs> after me and anthony have nearly parted ways and to never talk again we've brought it back right at the close yet yeah, you i mean the spoken word part of the song is almost able to bring me to tears i really find it emotional it's mm. wonderfully showman it's an almost Ringo-esque way to close the album, you know. On drums, we got Jim <laughs> Keltner. You know, it's borderline that,
1: because that was that was his last thing for five years. So he Shit, did. i it.
0: never even thought about that.
1: Yeah, Fuck. I mean, he brought out Shaved Fish, which was the first compilation, but yeah, he was signing off for five years. So I think it's got extra poignancy for that reason.
0: No, but come on, after he's died as well, like just hearing him yeah. speak about his childhood and saying goodbye. Matched with those lyrics and that particularly saccharine sentimental instrumentation, you'd need a heart of fucking stone to not well up a little bit. Come on, just a little bit. Um That's the end of the original official run of tracks, but that is not all we have to talk about. Uh, there are three tracks that I think we're going to touch on just a little bit. Yeah. What do you think of Angel Baby, the third track that should have been on the album, according to Morris Levy and his lawyers?
1: Yeah, I really love it. Yeah, nine and a half out of ten. I don't give tens. No, it's very simple. It's it's uh, it's just got really simple arpeggio, and it's I don't know. It just connects with me. It's hard to say why really. But that was a Rosie in Originals, and she had the hit when she was 15 years old, which is quite charming. But I think it's again the vocal. Like I mean, half the vocals on this album, it just sounds really impassioned, and with John Lennon, I think that just. That really comes through on his best stuff, so yeah, I don't know, I just love it.
0: See, it's so interesting as the difference between you and me as to what counts as an impassioned Lennon vocal, because to me it seems quite generic and half-assed. My angel baby, it just sounds like uh, he could have bashed this out in five minutes. It doesn't seem like anything too committed. I, I totally get that.
1: Sometimes you just don't know why you like something. You know, I could have easily, you know, that's why none of none of the opinions are like objective at all. You know, it's all subjective. I, just something connects with me with this song and I don't know why. I, I totally get that. You know, if you don't have that connection, it does sound quite generic and it's repetitive as I've been criticising other songs in this album. But I don't know, for some reason, I just love it.
0: Mate, I'm a guy who ranks <laughs> Long, Long, Long as George Harrison's best Beatles song. So I totally <laughs> get that, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about the song that Spectre wrote, though. To know her is to love her.
1: Yeah, this uh, this was also featured um, in my worst John Lennon covers. Again, it's sort of the same as Sweet Little Sixteen. If you listen to the, if you just listen to the live at the BBC album, which is probably the only John Lennon version of this you'll ever need. <laughs> to, no, 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 no oh, the lovely
0: yeah, home. yeah, no, yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But here, this is like dum, dum dum dum
1: dum dum, which is a really repetitive riff. Okay, fine. In another context, it might work. To no ding, 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 no, no, huh? And it's like, yeah, okay. You can kind of anticipate how long it's going to take to get to the end of that, end of that line. So yeah, I just, oh god, it's so unnecessary. It's so bloated. It's yeah. so um, just sort of dragging it out for no reason at all. So yeah,
0: well, probably... you know when there's a, a track. There's a track normally
1: cut from the album where you're like, oh, I totally get why that was cut. Yeah. Good, good choice. Yeah. It's not like totally terrible. I still, I think actually on, is it on the bridge? The vocal gets really good. So I'd, I'd give it six out of 10, which is bad for John Lennon. But uh, yeah, just unnecessary.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, like by like conventional standards, even like "Bad Boy" by the Beatles is still six, five out of ten, even by the worst possible uh, measurements. I like a "Bad Boy," yeah. yeah like bad boy, oh, fuck that song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and finally, of course, we have "Since My Baby Left Me," which we, we mentioned earlier is a bit heartbreak hotel esque. Is this up there in in these uh, cover versions for you?
1: It's all right. Yeah, I like, I like sort of the crowd atmosphere. I don't know if that was, that sounded a bit like a sort of sound effect of a party, but presumably it was a real one. Yeah, I like this good vocal again. I like the backing vocals, the sort of call and response thing. It's amazingly similar, actually, to That's All Right Mama, which is by the same person, Arthur Crudup, originally. And uh, it's funny how you could just get away with that in those days. You know, if you listen to Carl Perkins' greatest hits, he's another 50s hero of the Beatles, uh, they're all more or less the same song, but you just get away with it. In those days, you just got a sound and stuck to it.
0: I mean, have you ever listened to the Ink Spots? I mean, every single song is... High-pitched falsetto followed yeah. by a really deep voice, just speaking the same verse. Yeah, I you got the before.
1: yeah. The, the the break is the bass voice. Yeah, <clears throat> and,
0: then, and then you have a guitar line that starts with da, da 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 and you know it's the Ink Spots, and that's because of the technological limitations at the time. Yeah. No Spotify. You need to let people know this is a Beatles song or an Ink Spot song or an Elvis yeah. song.
1: I actually wrote a sort of a tribute to the Ink Spots called "Through Life" on my last album in Madrid. Yeah, you should listen to that. It's a, it's a, it's a um, affectionate pastiche of the Ink Spots.
0: Yes, <laughs> folks. Um, just in case you're wondering, Anthony has done several albums, but rather than being like Lennon, he had a McCartney reprise on one of the albums, which. Honestly, I loved I really did I was like, yes, Mm -hmm. a reprise And it's a song that I actually like as well So Mm -hmm. kudos for you for that, bro Yeah (laughs) But yeah, that pretty much brings us to the end Of John Lennon's rock and roll You know what? Let me press you You've been giving some arbitrary, totally useless scores For each of the individual songs For posterity What Mm. would your score for the album be?
1: I mean, simply eight. It's it's an eight album. <laughs> Fine. I like listening to it occasionally. I don't really listen to Beatles and John Lennon because they come up in conversations anyway. They come up in my feed, online feed anyway. So I don't really... I can't remember the last time I sat down and listened to an album, but...
0: I feel like yeah, I'm John Lennon totally for you. Eight. I'm so sorry. Like, I mean, no, it's what... totally eight out of ten for
1: me. <laughs> it's clear. It's clear. How <laughs> about you...
0: I'm so biased. I love both this and Chubba. They're Choppers, one of my favourite Paul McCartney albums. Rock and Roll's one of my favourite John Lennon albums. I just vibe with this kind of idea. I like generic throwaway filler rock and roll tunes. I just do. This is my kind of shtick. And if I was around in 75 and 88, 87, yeah, I would have bought them. This, this I would have lapped it right up. But... You are either delusional or arrogant to think that anyone else in the contemporary pop scene at that time would have given a fuck about this album. It's an album for future generations and for diehard fans at the time. It's not an album that is is designed to be bought and to go to number one or anything like that.
1: Well, just counter that slightly, because it was part of this sort of 50s revival just prior to it. Uh, it would ha- it would have some merit at the time for that reason, but no, I get your point. Yeah,
0: all right. All right. From 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 the perspective of a millennial, twenty something, soon to be thirty something.
2: Hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is more of a. You know what? I hate to use this term. This is a legacy album. This right. is an album that is designed not to be part of the official canon. But to be the best of the extras, you
1: know. Mm. I think I think what would mark it down slightly might even go down to a seven and a half. Is purely <laughs> or, no, it's pure. It's purely because of what it could have been. You know, you think John Lennon, rock and roll. Correct. It just could have been so much better. You know, with, with Phil Spectre different people. as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, would you have removed Spectre entirely and just had John produce the whole thing? I think there's only
1: a bit conflicted on Let It Be. Plastigano band, I don't. It's hard to know. You so see, you don't know what influence he had on Plastigano band. Imagine, mm-hmm. I think Instant Karma is the best. That's clearly a, a, um, a collaboration. It was clearly Spectre yeah. was responsible for all that layering. That was great, but uh, no, I, I don't think you, I don't think you just necessarily need him because you don't need lots of layering on rock and roll. It's just unnecessary. You should have had like like Chopper. You know, just have a four or five piece band and just. You know, add some horns here and there, but you don't need thirty musicians to play rock and roll.
0: So, would you you call this album overproduced?
1: Yeah, or over, over
0: conceptualized, or or, yeah,
1: over overblown. I think is the word. (laughs) It's over. It's over. It's over, over, folks. It's it's over something. Yes.
0: Yes. (laughs) Over (laughs) the hill. It's over something.
1: Yeah. I think uh, some of the faults with John Lennon for. Slathering, presumably it's his choice, slathering his vocal with too much, which I think is just a sign of insecurity. And it's great up to a point. I like I can't remember which songs, but we said at the time the ones that have just got that fifties echo, but not much more. Just as a again, Chobo's got that fifties echo. Beautiful. Perfect. Yeah. But you just I mean, don't need loads more yeah. layering and echoing. It's just unnecessary.
0: Again, yeah. John, just have more. Faith in yourself,
1: you know, yeah, really, that's what it comes down to, to be honest.
0: Yeah, but if John Lennon had confidence in himself, would we have some of the masterfully produced things like you know, Strawberry Fields Forever, I Am the Wall? Yeah. you know, it's a good
1: point, it's a good point. It depends what, depends what you're doing, you see. Strawberry Fields Forever is a complex piece of work, you know, yeah, yeah, or, <laughs> or it's, not, it's not complex, they're great songs. You know, I don't think there's any bad songs as songs on this. It's just, yeah, it just doesn't need everything that he added to it.
0: Comparing Yaya and Strawberry Phil's just caught me off guard there, bro. Yeah. Really. <laughs> oh, oh, that's, yeah. That's so funny. Even if you didn't intend it to be, that's great. Mm. So, overall, are we going to say that this is an underrated album, but only for specific reasons? But, no, because I don't think it's rated i don't
1: think it's rated that highly i think it's about right it's a seven slash yeah i've gone down from eight already <laughs> seven slash eight out it's of a seven. six
0: in it you hate it it's a you, you <laughs> heard it here first folks he gives it a five out of ten you heard i'm it gonna better. finally say seven and a half i'm not gonna waver from that <laughs> come on you want to haggle ten for <laughs> that you must be mad
1: you know? <laughs> no I don't, I don't think it is rated that highly that's the thing i think um as I said it's all objective. I don't think you find too too many people who would abs- either absolutely hate it or absolutely love it. You know, it's
0: Oh, but that's the worst kind of review, isn't it? I mean, everyone, you've all been there. You'd rather have a person hate you than be indifferent towards you because that's just the ultimate insult. And there are certainly yeah. songs on this album. You're totally correct. That do inspire a complete indifference in me. But the interesting part is, it's not the same ones as you, and that's what I think everyone's going to have the most fun with when they get back in touch with us. So folks, if you've enjoyed this episode of both Paul or Nothing Slash and or Glass Onion, please get in contact with either of us. Let us know what you thought of John Lennon's rock and roll. Of course, we're both going to be putting these episodes out at slightly different times. So mm. you've got double the opportunity to get in contact with us and perhaps have your thoughts expressed. I would love to know what McCartney fans think of rock and roll and I would love to know what John Lennon fans think of Chopper. Folks, mm. this hasn't been the most complicated ep- episode. It's rock and roll covers. There's only so many ways you can describe this sort of stuff. It's yeah. just been an excuse for me to have a chat with, a, with one of my very favourite people. In the world, which has been Anthony Rotuno from Glass Onion, dude, this has been so much fun. I cannot fucking wait to, to talk about Chobba, where I can interrupt you, being the guest rather than the host interrupting his own guest, which is a, a <laughs> which is going to be a new experience for me. I must yeah. uh, I must admit, um, <laughs> you've put up with me admirably. Uh, I can't wait to do this again soon. All
1: yeah, right, yeah, and um, just for my show, yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon. And uh, the Twitter's at OnionLennon and uh, glassonionpod at yahoo.com for feedback. Yeah, and I'll see you soon for Chopper.
0: Or Snover, or the Russian album, or Back in the USSR. Take your fucking pick. But this album is, whether you like it or not, called Rock and Roll. This was John Lennon's Rock and Roll, Up in the Walls from Paul or Nothing my co-host has been Anthony Lutuno from Glass Onion on Don Lemon links will all be down below this episode has already been probably an hour longer than it has intended it to be but thank you very much for listening we'll see you both very soon folks peace and love kiss kiss
2: bye 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 yeah. bye